0: Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax about the stressful day behind you and drift off to sleep.
1: That's Bluenile.com. Tonight, enjoy over three
0: hours of Sherlock Holmes Mysteries A Scandal in Bohemia, The Adventure of the Speckled Band, The Red Headed League,
1: and The Man with the Twisted Lip. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. A Scandal in Bohemia To Sherlock Holmes, she
0: is always the woman. I have seldom heard him mention her under any other name. In his eyes, she eclipses and predominates the whole of her sex. It was not that he felt any emotion akin to love for Irene Adler. All emotions, and that one in particular, were abhorrent to his cold, precise, and admirably balanced mind. He was, I take it, the most perfect reasoning and observing machine that the world has seen. But as a lover, he would have placed himself in a false position. He never spoke of the softer passions, save with a jibe and a snare. They were admirable things for the observer, excellent for drawing the veil from men's motives and actions but for the trained reasoner to admit such intrusions into his own delicate and finely adjusted temperament was to introduce a distracting factor which might throw a doubt upon all his mental results.
1: Grit in a sensitive instrument, or a crack in one of his own high-power lenses, would not
0: be more disturbing than a strong emotion in a nature such as his. And yet, there was but one woman to him, and that woman was the late Irene Adler of dubious and questionable memory. I had seen little of Holmes lately; My marriage had drifted us away from each other. My own complete happiness and the home-centred interests which rise up around the man who first finds himself master of his own establishment were sufficient to absorb all my attention while Holmes who loathed every form of society with his whole bohemian soul, remained in our lodgings in Baker Street, buried among his old books, and alternating from week to week between cocaine and ambition, the drowsiness of the drug, and the fierce energy of his own keen nature. He was still, as ever, deeply attracted by the study of crime, and occupied his immense faculties and extraordinary powers of observation, in following out those clues, and clearing up those mysteries which had been abandoned as hopeless by the official police. From time to time I heard some vague accounts of his doings, of his summons to Odessa, in the case of the Trepov murder, of his clearing up of the singular tragedy of the Atkin brothers at Trincomalee, and finally, of the mission which he had accomplished so delicately and successfully for the reigning family of Holland. Beyond those signs of his activity, however, which I merely shared with all the readers of the daily press, I knew little of my former friend and companion. One night, it was on the 20th of March, 1888, as returning from a journey to a patient, for I had now returned to civil practice, when my way led me through Baker Street. As I passed the well-remembered door which must always be associated in my mind with my wooing and with the dark incidents of the study in Scarlet, I was seized with a keen desire to see Holmes again and to know how he was employing his extraordinary powers. His rooms were brilliantly lit, and, even as I looked up, I saw his tall spare figure pass twice in a dark silhouette against the blind. He was pacing the room swiftly, eagerly, with his head sunk upon his chest and his hands clasped behind him. To me, who knew his every mood and habit, his attitude and manner told their own story. He was at work again. He had risen out of his drug-created dreams and was hot upon the scent of some new problem. I rang the bell and was shown up to the chamber, which had formerly been in part my own. His manner was not effusive. It seldom was. But he was glad, I think, to see me. With hardly a word spoken, but with a kindly eye, he waved me to an armchair, threw across his case of cigars, and indicated a spirit case and a gas chain in the corner. Then he stood before the fire and looked me over in his singular, introspective fashion. Wedlock suits you, he remarked. I think, Watson, that you've put on seven and a half pounds since I saw you. Seven, I answered. Indeed, I should have thought a little more, just a trifle more, I fancy Watson. And in practice again I observe. You did not tell me that you intended to go into harness? Then how did you know? I see it, I deduce it. How do I know that you have been getting yourself very wet lately and that you have a most clumsy and clearless servant girl? My dear Holmes, said I, this is too much. You would certainly have been burned had you lived a few centuries ago. It is true that I had a country walk on Thursday and came home in a dreadful mess, but as I have changed my clothes, I can't imagine how you deduce it. As to Mary Jane, she is incorrigible, and my wife has given her notice, but there, again, I fail to see how you work it out. He chuckled to himself and rubbed his long, nervous hands together. It is simplicity itself, said he. My eyes tell me that on the inside of your left shoe, just where the firelight strikes it, the leather is scored by six almost parallel cuts. Obviously, they have been caused by someone who is very carelessly scraped round the edges of the sole in order to remove crusted mud from it. Hence, you see, my double deduction that you had been out in foul weather and that you had a particularly malignant boot slitting servant. As to your practice, if a gentleman walks into my room smelling of iodiform with a black mart of nitrate of silver upon his right forefinger and a bulge on the right side of his top hat to show where he has secreted his stethoscope, I must be dull indeed if I do not pronounce him to be an active member of the medical profession. I could not help laughing at the ease with which he explained his process of deduction. When I hear you give your reasons, I remarked. The thing always appears to me to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily do it myself. Though at each successive instance of your reasoning, I am baffled until you explain your process. And yet I believe that my eyes are as good as yours. Quite so, he answered, lighting a cigarette and throwing himself down into an armchair. You see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. For example, you have frequently seen the steps which lead up from the hall to this room.
1: Frequently? How often? Well, some hundreds of times. Then, how many are there? How many? I don't know. Quite so. You have not observed, and yet
0: you have seen. That is just my point. Now, I know that there are 17 steps, because I have both seen and observed. By the way, since you are interested in these little problems, and since you are good enough to chronicle one or two of my trifling experiences, you may be interested in this. He threw over a sheet of pink, tinted, thick notepaper, which had been lying open upon the table. It came by the last post, said he. Read it aloud. The note was undated, without either signature or address. They will call upon you tonight, at quarter to eight o'clock, it said a gentleman who desires to consult you upon a matter of the very deepest moment. Your recent services to one of the Royal Houses of Europe have shown that you are one who may safely be trusted with matters which are of an importance which can be hardly exaggerated. This account of you we have from all quarters received. Be in your chamber, then, at that hour, and do not take it amiss if your visitor wear a mask. This is indeed a mystery, I remarked. What do you imagine that it means? I have no data yet. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. But the note itself, what do you deduce from it? I carefully examined the writing and the paper upon which it was written. The man who wrote it was presumably well to do, I remarked, endeavoring to imitate my companion's processes. Such paper could not be bought under half a crown a packet. It is peculiarly strong and stiff. Peculiar, that is the very word, said Holmes. It is not an English paper at all. Hold it up to the light. I did so and saw a large E with a small G and a large P and a large G with a small T woven into the texture of the paper. What do you make of that? asked Holmes. The name of the maker, no doubt. Or his monogram, rather. Not at all. The G, with a small t, stands for Gesellschaft, which is the German for company. It is a customary contraction like our Co. P, of course, stands for Papier. Now for the E.G. Let us glance at our continental gazetteer. He took down a heavy brown volume from his shelves. Eglo, Eglonitz, here we are, Egeria. It is in a German-speaking country in Bohemia, not far from Carlsbad. Remarkable as being the scene of the death of Willemstein, and for its numerous glass factories and paper mills. Haha, my boy, what do you make of that? His eyes sparkled, and he sent up a great blue triumphant cloud from his cigarette.
1: The paper was made in Bohemia, I said. Precisely. And the man who wrote the note is a German. Do you note the peculiar
0: construction of the sentence? This account of you we have from all quarters received. A Frenchman or a Russian could not have written that. It is the German who is so uncourteous to his verbs. It only remains, therefore, to discover what is wanted by this German who writes upon Bohemian paper and prefers wearing a mask to showing his face. And here he comes, if I am not mistaken. To resolve all our doubts. As he spoke, there was the sharp sound of horses' hoofs and grating wheels against the curb, followed by a sharp pull at the bell. Holmes whistled. "Up pair by the sound, said he. Yes, he continued, glancing out of the window. A nice little broham and a pair of beauties. A hundred and fifty guineas apiece. There's money in this case,
1: Watson, if there's nothing else. I think that I had better go, Holmes. Not a bit, Doctor. Stay where you are. I am lost without my Boswell. And this promises to be interesting. It would be a pity to miss it. But your client? Never mind him. I may want your
0: help, and so may he. Here he comes. Sit down in that armchair, Doctor, and give us your best attention. A slow and heavy step, which had been heard upon the stairs and in the passageway, paused immediately outside the door. Then there was a loud and authoritative tap. Come in, said Holmes. A man entered who could hardly have been less than six foot six inches in height, with the chest and limbs of a Hercules. His dress was rich with a richness which would, in England, be looked upon as akin to bad taste. Heavy bands of astrakhan were slashed across the sleeves and fronts of his double breasted coat, while the deep blue cloak which was thrown over his shoulders was lined with flame-coloured silk and secured at the neck with a brooch, which consisted of a single flaming barrel. Boots, which extended halfway up his calves and which were trimmed at the tops with rich brown fur, completed the impression of barbaric opulence, which was suggested by his whole appearance. He carried a broad brimmed hat in his hand while he wore, across the upper part of his face, extending down past the cheekbones, a black vizard mask, which he had apparently adjusted that very moment, for his hand was still raised to it as he entered. From the lower part of the face he appeared to be a man of strong character, with a thick hanging lip and a long, straight chin, suggested of resolution, pushed to the length of obstinacy. "'You had my note,' he asked with a deep, harsh voice and a strongly marked German accent. "'I told you that I would call.' He looked from one to the other of us, as if uncertain, which to address. Pray, take a seat, said Holmes. This is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson, who is occasionally good enough to help me in my cases. Whom have I the honour to address? You may address me as the Count von Cram, a Bohemian nobleman. I understand that this gentleman, your friend, is a man of honour and discretion, whom I may trust with a matter of the most extreme importance. If not... I should much prefer to communicate with you alone. I rose to go, but Holmes caught me by the wrist and pushed me back into my chair. It is both or none, said he. You may say before this gentleman anything which you may say before me. The Count shrugged his broad shoulders. Then I must begin, said he, by binding you both to absolute secrecy for two years. At the end of that time, the matter will be of no more importance. At present, It is not too much to say that it is of such weight it may have an influence upon European history. I promise, said Holmes, and I. You will excuse this mask, continued our strange visitor. The august person who employs me wishes this agent to be unknown to you, and I may confess at once that the title by which I have just called myself is not exactly my own. I was aware of that, said Holmes, dryly. The circumstances are of a great delicacy, and every precaution has to be taken to quench what might grow to be an immense scandal and seriously compromise one of the reigning families of Europe. To speak plainly, the matter implicates the great house of Ormstein, hereditary kings of Bohemia. I was also aware of that, murmured Holmes, settling himself down in his armchair and closing his eyes. Our visitor glanced with some apparent surprise at the Languid, lounging figure of the man who had no doubt been depicted to him as the most incisive reasoner and most energetic agent in Europe. Holmes slowly reopened his eyes and looked impatiently at his gigantic client. If your majesty would condescend to state your case, he remarked, I should be better able to advise you. The man sprang from his chair and paced up and down the room in uncontrollable agitation. Then, with a gesture of desperation, he tore the mask from his face and hurled it upon the ground. You are right, he cried. I am the king. Why should I attempt to conceal it? Why indeed? murmured Holmes. Your Majesty had not spoken before I was aware that I was addressing Willem Gottstrich Sigismund von Ormstein, Grand Duke of Castlefulstein, and hereditary King of Bohemia. But you can understand said our strange visitor, sitting down once more and passing his hand over his high white forehead. You can understand that I am not accustomed to doing such business in my own person. Yet the matter was so delicate that I could not confide it to an agent without putting myself in his power. I have come incognito from Prague for the purpose of consulting you. Then pray, consult, said Holmes, shutting his eyes once more. The facts are briefly these. Some five years ago, during a lengthy visit to Warsaw, I made the acquaintance of the well known adventuress, Irene Adler. The name is no doubt familiar to you. Kindly look her up in my index, Doctor, murmured Holmes without opening his eyes. For many years, he had adopted a system of docketing all paragraphs concerning men and things, so that it was difficult to name a subject or a person on which he could not at once furnish information. In this case, I found her biography sandwiched in between that of a Hebrew rabbi and that of a staff commander who'd written a monograph upon the deep sea fishes. Let me see, said Holmes. Hmm. Born in New Jersey in the year 1858. contralto. Hmm. La Scala. Hmm. Prima Donna, Imperial Opera of Warsaw. Yes. Retired from operatic stage. Ha. Living in London. Quite so. Your Majesty, as I understand, became entangled with this young person, wrote her some compromising letters,
1: and is now desirous of getting those letters back. Precisely so. But how? Was there a secret marriage? None. No legal papers or certificates? None.
0: Then I fail to follow your Majesty. If this young person should produce her letters for blackmailing or other purposes, How is she to prove their authenticity?
1: There is the writing. Forgery. My private notepaper. Stolen. My own seal. Imitated. My photograph. Bought. We were both in the photograph. Oh dear, that is very bad. Your Majesty has indeed
0: committed an indiscretion. I was mad. Insane. You've compromised yourself seriously. I was only crown prince then. I was young. I am but thirty now. It must be recovered. We have tried and failed. Your majesty must pay. It must be bought. She will not sell. Stolen, then. Five attempts have been made. Twice burglars in my pay ransacked her house. Once we diverted her luggage when she travelled. Twice she has been waylaid. There has been no result. No sign of it? Absolutely none. Holmes laughed. It is quite a pretty little problem, said he. But a very serious one to me, returned the king, reproachfully. Very indeed.
1: And what does she propose to do with the photograph? To ruin me. But how? I am to be married. So I have heard.
0: To Cotilde Lothman von saxe Menningen, second daughter of the king of Scandinavia. You may know the strict principles of her family. She is herself the very soul of delicacy. A shadow of a doubt as to my conduct would bring the matter to an end. And Irene Adler threatens to send them the photograph. And she will do it. I know that she will do it. You do not know her, but she has a soul of steel. She has the face of the most beautiful of women and the mind of the most resolute of men. Rather than I should marry another woman, There are no lengths to which she would not go. None. You are sure that she has not sent it yet? I am sure. And why? Because she has said that she would send it on the day when the betrothal was publicly proclaimed. That will be next Monday. Oh, then we have three days yet, said Holmes with a yawn. That is very fortunate, as I have one or two matters of importance to look into just at present. Your Majesty will, of course, stay in London for the present? Certainly. You will find me at the Langham under the name of Count von Kram. Then I shall drop you a line to let you know how
1: we progress. Pray do so. I shall be all anxiety. Then as to money? You have carte blanche. Absolutely.
0: I tell you that I would give one of the provinces of my kingdom to have that photograph. And for present expenses. The king took a heavy chamois leather bag from under his cloak. And laid it on the table. There are three hundred pounds in gold and seven hundred in notes, he said. Holmes scribbled a receipt upon a sheet of his notebook and handed it to him. And Mademoiselle's address? he asked. It's Bryony Lodge, Serpentine Avenue, St. John's Wood. Holmes took a note of it. One other question, said he. Was the photograph a cabinet? It was. Then good night, Your Majesty. And I trust that we shall soon have some good news for you. And good night, Watson, he added, as the wheels of the Royal Brougham rolled down the street. If you shall be good enough to call tomorrow afternoon at three o'clock, I should like to chat this little matter over with you. At three o'clock precisely, I was at Baker Street, but Holmes had not yet returned. The landlady informed me that he had left the house shortly after eight o'clock in the morning. I sat down beside the fire, however, with the intention of awaiting him, however long he might be. I was already deeply interested in his inquiry, for, though it was surrounded by none of the grim and strange features which were associated with the two crimes which I have already recorded, still, the nature of the case and the exalted station of his client gave it a character of its own. Indeed, apart from the nature of the investigation, which my friend had on hand, there was something in his masterly grasp of a situation and his keen insights of reasoning which made it a pleasure to me to study his system of work and to follow the quick, subtle methods by which he disentangled the most inextricable mysteries. So accustomed was I to his invariable success that the very possibility of his failing had ceased to enter into my head. It was close upon four before the door opened and a drunken-looking groom ill-kempt and side-whiskered, with an inflamed face and disreputable clothes, walked into the room. Accustomed as I was to my friend's amazing powers in the use of disguises, I had to look three times before I was certain that it was indeed he. With a nod, he vanished into the bedroom, whence he emerged in five minutes, tweed-suited and respectable as of old. Putting his hands into his pockets, he stretched out his legs in front of the fire, and laughed heartily for some minutes. Well, really, he cried, and then he choked and laughed again, until he was obliged to lie back, limp and helpless, in the chair. What is it? It's quite too funny. I'm sure you could never guess how I employed my morning, or what I ended by doing. I can't imagine. I suppose that you've been watching the habits and perhaps the house of Miss Irene Alder. Quite so but the sequel was rather unusual. I will tell you, however. I left the house a little after eight o'clock this morning in the character of a groom out of work. There's a wonderful sympathy in Freemasonry among horsey men. Be one of them and you will know all that there is to know. I soon found Bryony Lodge. It is a bijou villa with a garden at the back, but built out in front, right up to the road, two stories, chub to the door large sitting room on the right side, well furnished, with long windows almost to the floor and those preposterous English window fasteners which a child could open. Behind there was nothing remarkable save that the passage window could be reached from the top of the coach house. I walked round it and examined it closely from every point of view but without noting anything else of interest. I then lounged down the street and found as I expected that there was a mews in a lane which runs down by one wall of the garden. I lent the osters a hand in rubbing down their horses, and received in exchange twopence, a glass of half-and-half, half, two fills of shag tobacco, and as much information as I could desire about Miss Adler, to say nothing of half a dozen other people in the neighbourhood in whom I was not in the least interested, but whose biographies I was compelled to listen to. And what of Irene Adler? I asked she has turned all the men's heads down in that part. She is the daintiest thing under a bonnet on this planet, so say the serpentine muse to a man. She lives quietly, sings at concerts, drives out at five every day, and returns at seven sharp for dinner. Seldom goes out at other times, except when she sings. Has only one male visitor, but a good deal of him. He is dark, handsome, and dashing, never calls less than once a day, and often twice. He is a Mr. Godfrey Norton of the Inner Temple. See the advantages of a cadman as a confidant. They had driven him home a dozen times from Serpentine Mews and knew all about him. When I had listened to all they had to tell, I began to walk up and down near Briony Lodge once more, and to think over my plan of campaign. This Godfrey Norton was evidently an important factor in the matter. He was a lawyer, that sounded ominous. What was the relation between them, and what the object of his repeated visits? Was she his client, his friend, or his mistress? If the former, she had probably transferred the photograph to his keeping. If the latter, it was less likely. On the issue of this question depended whether I should continue my work at Bryony Lodge, or turn my attention to the gentleman's chambers in the temple. It was a delicate point, and it widened the field of my inquiry. I fear that I bore you with these details, I'd have to let you see my little difficulties if you are to understand the situation. I am following you closely, I answered. I was still balancing the matter in my mind when a handsome cab drove up to Briony Lodge, and a gentleman sprang out. He was remarkably handsome, dark, aquiline, and moustached, evidently the man of whom I'd heard. He appeared to be in a great hurry, shouted to the cabman to wait and brushed past the maid who opened the door with the air of a man who was thoroughly at home. He was in the house about half an hour, and I could catch glimpses of him in the windows of the sitting room, pacing up and down, talking excitedly, and waving his arms. Of her, I could see nothing. Presently he emerged, looking even more flurried than before. As he stepped up to the cab, he pulled a gold watch from his pocket and looked at it earnestly. Drive like the devil, he shouted, first to Gross and Hankies in Regent Street, and then to the Church of St. Monica in the Edgware Road. Half a guinea if you do it in twenty minutes. Away they went, and I was wondering whether I should not do well to follow them, when up the lane came a neat little Landau, the coachman with his coat only half buttoned and his tie under his ear, while all the tags of his harness were sticking out of the buckles. It hadn't pulled up before she shut out of the hall door and into it. I only caught a glimpse of her at the moment, but she was a lovely woman with a face that a man might die for. The church of St. Monica, John, she cried, and half a sovereign if you reach it in twenty minutes. This was quite too good to lose, Watson. I was just balancing whether I should run for it or whether I should perch behind Orlando when a cab came through the street. The driver looked twice at such a shabby fare, but I jumped in before he could object. "'The church of St. Monica,' said I, "'and half a sovereign if you reach it in twenty minutes.' It was twenty-five minutes to twelve, and of course it was clear enough what was in the wind. My cabby drove fast. I don't think I ever drove faster, but the others were there before us. The cab and the landau with their steaming horses were in front of the door when I arrived. I paid the man and hurried into the church. There was not a soul there save the two whom I had followed and a surpliced clergyman who seemed to be expostulating with them. They were all three standing in a knot in front of the altar. I lounged up the side aisle like any other idler who's dropped into a church. Suddenly, to my surprise, the three of the altar faced round to me and Godfrey Norton came running as hard as he could towards me. Thank God, he cried. You'll do. Come, come what then? I asked. Come, man, come. Only three minutes or it won't be legal. I was half dragged up to the altar, and before I knew where I was, I found myself mumbling responses which were whispered in my ear, and vouching for things of which I knew nothing, and generally assisting in the secure tying up of Irene Adler, spinster to Godfrey Norton bachelor. It was all done in an instant, and there was the gentleman thanking me on the one side, and the lady on the other, while the clergyman beamed on me in front. It was the most preposterous position in which I ever found myself in my life, and it was the thought of it that started me laughing just now. It seems that there had been some informality about their license, that the clergyman absolutely refused to marry them without a witness of some sort, and that my lucky appearance saved the bridegroom from having to sally out onto the streets in search of a best man. The bride gave me a sovereign, and I mean to wear it on my watch chain in memory of the occasion. This is a very unexpected turn of affairs, said I. And what then? Well, I found my plans very seriously menaced. It looked as if the pair might make an immediate departure, and so necessitate very prompt and energetic measures on my part. At the church door, however, they separated, he driving back to the temple and she to her own house. I shall drive out in the park at five as usual, she said as she left him. I heard no more. They drove away in different directions, and I went off to make my own arrangements, which are some cold beef and a glass of beer, he answered, ringing the bell. I have been too busy to think of food, and I am likely to be busier still
1: this evening. By the way, daughter, I shall want your cooperation. I shall be delighted. You don't mind breaking the law? Not in
0: the least. Nor running a chance of arrest. Not in a good cause. Oh, the cause is excellent. Then I am your man. I was sure that I might rely on you. But what is it you wish? When Mrs. Turner has brought in the tray, I will make it clear to you. Now, he said, as he turned hungrily on the simple fare that our landlady had provided, I must discuss it while I eat, for I have not much time. It is nearly five now. In two hours, we must be on the scene of action. Miss Irene, or Madame, rather, returns from her drive at seven. We must be at Briony Lodge to meet her. And then what? You must leave that to me. I have already arranged what is to occur. There is only one point in which I must insist. You must not interfere, come what may. You understand. I am to be neutral. To do nothing whatever. There will probably be some small unpleasantness. Do not join in it. It will end in my being conveyed into the house. Four or five minutes afterwards, the sitting room window will open. You are to station yourself close to that open window. Yes. You are to watch me, for I will be visible to you. Yes. And when I raise my hand, so, you will throw into that room what I give you to throw, and will, at the same time, raise the cry of fire. You quite follow me? Entirely. It is nothing very formidable, he said, taking a long, cigar-shaped roll from his pocket. It is an ordinary plumber's smoke rocket, fitted with a cap at either end to make itself lighting. Your task is confined to that. When you raise your cry of fire, it will be taken up by quite a number of people. You may then walk to the end of the street, and I will rejoin you in ten minutes. I hope that I've made myself clear. I am to remain neutral to get near the window to watch you and at the signal to throw in this object then to raise the cry of fire and to wait you at the corner of the street precisely then you may rely entirely on me that is excellent i think perhaps it is almost time that i prepare for the new role i have to play he disappeared into his bedroom and returned in a few minutes in the character of an amiable and simple-minded nonconformist clergyman His broad black hat, his baggy trousers, his white tie, his sympathetic smile, and general look of peering and benevolent curiosity were such as Mr. John Hare alone could have equaled. It was not merely that Holmes changed his costume. His expression, his manner, his very soul seemed to vary with every fresh part that he assumed. The stage lost a fine actor, even as science lost an acute reasoner, when he became a specialist in crime. It was a quarter past six when we left Baker Street, and it still wanted ten minutes to the hour when we found ourselves in Serpentine Avenue. It was already dusk, and the lamps were just being lighted as we paced up and down in front of Briony Lodge, waiting for the company of its occupant. The house was just as I had pictured it from Sherlock Holmes's succinct description, but the locality appeared to be less private than I expected. On the contrary, for a small street in a quiet neighbourhood it was remarkably animated. There was a group of shabbily dressed men smoking and laughing in a corner. A scissors grinder with his wheel, two guardsmen who were flirting with a nurse girl, and several well-dressed young men who were lounging up and down with cigars in their mouths. You see, remarked Holmes, as we paced to and fro in front of the house, this marriage rather simplifies matters. The photograph becomes a double-edged weapon now, The chances are that she would be as averse to its being seen by Mr. Godfrey Norton as our client is to its coming to the eyes of Mrs. Princess. Now the question is, where are we to find the photograph? Where indeed? It is most unlikely that she carries it about with her, and it is a cabinet size. Too large for easy concealment about a woman's dress. She knows that the king is capable of having her waylaid and searched. Two attempts of this sort have already been made. We may take it then that she does not carry it about
1: with her. Where then? Her banker or her lawyer? There is that double possibility. But I am inclined to think neither.
0: Women are naturally secretive, and they like to do their own secreting. Why should she hand it over to anyone else? She could trust her own guardianship, but she could not tell what indirect or political influence might be brought to bear upon a businessman. Besides, remember that she'd resolved to use it within a few days. It must be where she can lay her hands upon it. It must be in her own house.
1: But it has been burgled twice. They don't know how to look. But how will you look? I will not look. What then? I will get her to show it to me. But she will refuse. She will not be able to.
0: But I hear the rumble of wheels. It is her carriage. Now carry out my orders to the letter. As he spoke, the gleam of the side lights of a carriage came round the curve of the avenue. It was a smart little landau which rattled up to the door of Branny Lodge. As it pulled up, one of the loafing men at the corner dashed forward to open the door in the hope of earning a copper, but was elbowed away by another loafer who had rushed up with the same intention. A fierce quarrel broke out, which was increased by the two guardsmen who took sides with one of the loungers and by the scissors grinder who was equally hot upon the other side. A blow was struck, and in an instant the lady, who had stepped from her carriage, was the centre of a little knot of flushed and struggling men, who struck savagely at each other with their fists and sticks. Holmes dashed into the crowd to protect the lady, but just as he reached her, he gave a cry and dropped to the ground, with the blood running freely down his face. At his fall, the guardsmen took to their heels in one direction and the loungers in the other while a number of the better-dressed people who had watched the scuffle without taking part in it crowded in to help the lady and to attend to the injured man. Irene Adler, as I will still call her, had hurried up the steps, but she stood at the top with her superb figure outlined against the lights of the hall, looking back into the street. Is the poor gentleman much hurt? she asked. He's dead, cried several voices. No, no, there's life in him, shouted another, but he'll be gone before you can get him to the hospital. He's a brave fellow, said a woman. They would have had the lady's purse. And watch, if it hadn't been for
1: him. They were a gang, and a rough one, too. He's breathing now. He can't lie in the street. May we bring him in, ma'am?
0: Surely. Bring him into the sitting room. There is a comfortable sofa. This way, please. Slowly and solemnly, he was borne into Branny Lodge and laid out in the principal room. While I still observed the proceedings from my post by the window. The lamps had been lit, but the blinds had not been drawn, so that I could see Holmes as he lay upon the couch. I do not know whether he was seized with compunction at that moment for the part he was playing, but I know that I never felt more heartily ashamed of myself in my life than when I saw the beautiful creature against whom I was conspiring, or the grace and kindliness with which he waited upon the injured man. And yet It would be the blackest treachery to Holmes to draw back now from the part which he had entrusted me to play. I hardened my heart and took the smoke rocket from under my ulster. After all, I thought, we are not injuring her. We are, but preventing her from injuring another. Holmes had sat up upon the couch and I saw him motion like a man who is in need of air. A maid rushed across and threw open the window. At the same instant, I saw him raise his hand and at the signal, I tossed my rocket into the room with a cry of fire. The word was no sooner out of my mouth than the whole crowd of spectators, well-dressed and ill, gentlemen, ostlers, and servant-maids, joined in a streak of fire, thick clouds of smoke curled through the room and out at the open window. I caught a glimpse of rushing figures, and a moment later, the voice of Holmes from within assuring them that it was a false alarm. Slipping through the shouting crowd, I made my way to the corner of the street and in ten minutes was rejoiced to find my friend's arm in mine and to get away from the scene of uproar. He walked swiftly and in silence for some few minutes until we had turned down one of the quiet streets which led towards the Edgware Road.
1: You did it very nicely, Doctor, he remarked. Nothing could have been better. It is all right. You have the photograph? I know where it is. And how did you find out? She showed me, as
0: I told you she would. I am still in the dark. I do not wish to make a mystery, said he, laughing. The matter was perfectly simple. You, of course, saw that everyone in the street was an accomplice. They were all engaged for the evening. I guessed as much. Then, when the row broke out, I had a little moist red paint in the palm of my hand. I rushed forward, fell down, clapped my hand to my face, and became a piteous spectacle. It is an old trick. That also I could fathom. Then they carried me in. She was bound to have me in. What else could she do? And into her sitting room, which was the very room which I suspected. It lay between that and her bedroom, and I was determined to see which. They laid me on the couch, I motioned for air, they were compelled to open the window, and you had your chance. How did that help you? It was all important. When a woman thinks that her house is on fire, her instinct is at once to rush to the thing which she values most. It is a perfectly overpowering impulse, and I have more than once taken advantage of it. In the case of the Darlington substitution scandal, it was of use to me, and also in the Arnsworth Castle business. A married woman grabs at her baby, an unmarried one reaches for her jewel box. Now it was clear to me that our lady of today had nothing in the house more precious to her, than what we are in quest of. She would rush to secure it. The alarm of fire was admirably done. The smoke and shouting were enough to shake nerves of steel. She responded beautifully. The photograph is in a recess behind a sliding panel just above the right bell pull. She was there in an instant, and I caught a glimpse of it as she half drew it out. When I cried out that it was a false alarm, she replaced it, glanced at the rocket, rushed from the room, and I have not seen her since. I rose, and making my excuses, escaped from the house. I hesitated whether to attempt to secure the photograph at once, but the coachman had come in, and as he was watching me narrowly, it seemed safer to wait. A little over-precipitance may ruin all. And now, I asked, our quest is practically finished. I shall call with the king tomorrow, and with you, if you care to come with us. We'll be shown into the sitting-room to wait for the lady, but it is probable that, when she comes, she may find neither of us, nor the photograph. It might be a satisfaction to his majesty to regain it with his own hands. And when will you call? At eight in the morning. She will not be up, so that we shall have a clear field. Besides, we must be prompt, for this marriage may mean a complete change in her life and habits. I must wire to the King without delay. we had reached Baker Street and had stopped at the door. He was searching his pockets for the key when someone passing said, Good night, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. There were several people on the path at the time, but the greeting appeared to come from a slim youth in an Ulster who had hurried by. I've heard that voice before, said Holmes, staring down the dimly lit street. Now I wonder who the deuce that could have been. I slept at Baker Street that night and we were engaged upon our toast and coffee in the morning when the King of Bohemia rushed into the room. You've really got it, he cried, grasping Sherlock Holmes by either shoulder and looking eagerly into his face. Not yet. But you have hopes. I have hopes. Then come. I am all impatience to be gone. We must have a cab. No, my my Burham is waiting. Then that will simplify matters. We descended and started off... Once more
1: for Bryony Lodge. Irene Adler is married, remarked Holmes. Married? When? Yesterday. But to whom? To an English lawyer named Norton. But she could not love him. I am in hopes that
0: she does. And why in hopes? Because it would spare your majesty all fear of future annoyance. If a lady loves her husband, she does not love your majesty. If she does not love your majesty, There's no reason why she should interfere with your Majesty's plan. It is true. And yet... Well, I wish she had been of my own station. What a queen she would have made. He relapsed into a moody silence, which was not broken until we drew up in Serpentine Avenue. The door of Bryony Lodge was open, and an elderly woman stood upon the steps. She watched us with a sardonic eye as we stepped out of the brougham. Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I believe, said she. I am, Mr. Holmes, answered my companion, looking at her with a questioning and rather startled gaze. Indeed, my mistress told me that you were likely to call. She left this morning with her husband at the 515 train from Charing Cross for the Continent. What? Sherlock Holmes staggered back, white with chagrin and surprise. Do you mean that she has left England?
1: Never to return. And the papers? asked the king, hoarsely. All is lost. We shall see. He pushed past the servant who rushed into the drawing room followed by the king and myself.
0: The furniture was scattered about in every direction with dismantled shelves and open drawers as if the lady had hurriedly ransacked them before her flight. Holmes rushed at the bell pull, tore back a small sliding shutter and plunging in his hand pulled out a photograph and a letter. The photograph was of Irene Adler herself in an evening dress. The letter was superscribed to Sherlock Holmes Esquire to be left till called for. My friend tore it open, and we all three read it together. It was dated at midnight of the preceding night, and ran in this way. My dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, you really did very well. You took me in completely. Until, after the alarm of fire, I had not a suspicion. But then, when I found out how I betrayed myself, I began to think. I had been warned against you months ago. I had been told that, if the king employed an agent, it would certainly be you. And your address had been given to me. Yet with all this, you made me reveal what you wanted to know, even after I became suspicious. I found it hard to think evil of such a dear, kind, old clergyman. But you know, I have been trained as an actress myself. Male costume is nothing new to me. I often take advantage of the freedom which it gives. I sent John, the coachman, to watch you, ran upstairs, got into my walking clothes, as I call them, and came down just as you departed. Well, I followed you to your door, and so made sure that I was really an object of interest to the celebrated Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Then I rather imprudently wished you good night, and started for the temple to see my husband. We both thought the best resource was flight when pursued by so formidable an antagonist. So you will find the nest empty when you call tomorrow. As to the photograph, your client may rest in peace. I love and I am loved by a better man than he. The king may do what he will without hindrance from one whom he has cruelly wronged. I keep it only to safeguard myself and to preserve a weapon which will always secure me from any steps which he might take in the future. I leave a photograph which he might care to possess, and I remain, dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, very truly yours, Irene Norton, nay, Adler. What a woman, oh, what a woman, cried the King of Bohemia, when we had all three read this epistle. Did I not tell you how quick and resolute she was? Would she not have been an admirable queen? Is it not a pity that she was not on my level? From what I have seen of the lady, she seems indeed to be on a very different level to your majesty, said Holmes, coldly. I am sorry that I have not been able to bring your majesty's business to a more successful conclusion. On the contrary, my dear sir, cried the king, nothing could be more successful. I know that her word is inviolate. The photograph is now as safe as if it were in the fire. I am glad to hear your majesty say so. I am immensely indebted to you. Pray tell me in what way I can reward you. This ring. He slipped an emerald snake ring from his finger and held it out upon the palm of his hand. Your Majesty has something which I should value even more highly, said Holmes. You have but to name it. This photograph. The King stared at him in amazement. Irene's photograph, he cried. Certainly, if you wish it. I thank your Majesty. Then there is no more to be done in the matter. I have the honor to wish you a very good morning he bowed, and turning away without observing the hand which the king had stretched out to him, he set off in my company for his chambers. And that was how a great scandal threatened to affect the king of Bohemia, and how the best plans of Mr. Sherlock Holmes were beaten by a woman's wit. He used to make merry over the cleverness of women, but I have not heard him do it of late, and when he speaks of Irene Adler, or when he refers to a photograph,
1: It is always under the honourable title of The Woman. The Adventure of the Speckled Band On glancing over my notes
0: of the seventy-odd cases in which I have, during the last eight years, studied the methods of my friend Sherlock Holmes, I find many tragic, some comic, A large number merely strange, but none commonplace. For working as he did, rather for the love of his art than for the acquirement of wealth, he refused to associate himself with any investigation which did not tend towards the unusual and even the fantastic. Of all these varied cases, however, I cannot recall any which presented more singular features than that which was associated with the well-known Surrey family of the royalots of Stoke Moran. The events in question occurred in the early days of my association with Holmes, when we were sharing rooms as bachelors in Baker Street. It is possible that I might have placed them upon record before, but a promise of secrecy was made at the time, from which I have only been freed during the last month, by the untimely death of the lady to whom the pledge was given, it is perhaps as well that the facts should now come to light, for I have reasons to know that there are widespread rumours as to the death of Doctor Grimesby Roylott, which tend to make the matter even more terrible than the truth. It was early in April, in the year eighty-three, that I woke one morning to find Sherlock Holmes standing, fully dressed by the side of my bed. He was a late riser, as a rule, and as the clock on the mantelpiece showed me that it was only a quarter past seven, I blinked up at him in some surprise, and perhaps just a little resentment, for I was myself regular in my habits. Very sorry to knock you up, Watson, said he, but it's the common lot this morning. Mrs. Hudson has been knocked up, she retorted upon me, and I on you. What is it then, a fire? No, a client. It seems that a young lady has arrived in a considerable state of excitement, who insists upon seeing me. She is waiting now in the sitting room. Now when young ladies wander about the metropolis at this hour of the morning, and knock sleepy people up out of their beds, I presume that it is something very pressing which they have to communicate. Should it prove to be an interesting case, you should. I am sure, wished to follow it from the outset. I thought, at any rate, that I should call you and give you the chance. My dear fellow, I will not miss it for anything. I had no keener pleasure than in following Holmes in his professional investigations and in admiring the rapid deductions as swift as intuitions and yet always founded on a logical basis with which he unraveled the problems which were submitted to him. I rapidly threw on my clothes and was ready in a few minutes to accompany my friend down to the sitting room. A lady dressed in black and heavily veiled, who had been sitting in the window, rose as we entered. Good morning, madam, said Holmes, cheerily. My name is Sherlock Holmes. This is my intimate friend and associate, Dr. Watson, before whom you can speak as freely as before myself. I am glad to see that Mrs. Hudson has had the good sense to light the fire. Pray draw up to it, and I shall order you a cup of coffee, for I observe that you are shivering. It is not cold which makes me shiver, said the woman in a low voice, changing her seat as requested. What then? It is fear, Mr. Holmes. It is terror. She raised her veil as she spoke, and we could see that she was indeed in a pitiable state of agitation, her face all drawn and grey, with restless, frightened eyes like those of some hunted animal. Her features and figure were those of a woman of thirty, but her hair was shot with premature grey, and her expression was weary and haggard. Sherlock Holmes ran her over with one of his quick, all-comprehensive glances. You must not fear, said he, soothingly, bending forward and patting her forearm. We shall soon set matters right, I have no doubt. You have come in by train this morning, I see. You know me then? No, but I observed the second half of a return ticket in the palm of your left glove. You must have started early, and yet you had a good drive in a dog cart along heavy roads before you reached the station. The lady gave a violent start and stared in bewilderment at my companion. There is no mystery, my dear madam, said he, smiling. The left arm of your jacket is spattered with mud in no less than seven places. The marks are perfectly fresh. There is no vehicle save a dog cart, which throws up mud in that way. And then only when you sit on the left-hand side of the driver. Whatever your reasons may be, you are perfectly correct, said she. I started from home before six, reached Leatherhead at twenty past, and came in by the first train to Waterloo. Sir, I can stand this strain no longer. I shall go mad if it continues. I have no one to turn to, none save only one who cares for me, and he, poor fellow, can be of little aid. I have heard of you, Mr. Holmes. I have heard of you from Mrs. Farintosh, whom you helped in the hour of her sore need. It was from her that I had your address. Oh sir, do you not think that you could help me too, and at least throw a little light through the dense darkness which surrounds me at present? It is out of my power to reward you for your services. But in a month or six weeks, I shall be married, with the control of my own income. And then at least, you shall not find me ungrateful. Holmes turned to his desk, and unlocking it, drew out a small casebook which he consulted. Farentosh, said he. Ah, yes, I recall the case. It was concerned with an opal tiara. I think it was before your time, Watson. I can only say, madam that I shall be happy to devote the same care to your case as I did to that of your friend. As to reward, my profession is its own reward, but you are at liberty to defray whatever expenses I may be put to at the time which suits you best. And now I beg that you will lay before us everything that may help us in forming an opinion upon the matter. Alas, replied our visitor, the very horror of my situation lies in the fact that my fears are so vague and my suspicions depend so entirely upon small points which might seem trivial to another that even he to whom of all others I have a right to look for help and advice looks upon all that I tell him about it as the fancies of a nervous woman. He does not say so but I can read it from his soothing answers and averted eyes. But I have heard, Mr. Holmes that you can see deeply into the manifold wickedness of the human heart. You may advise me how to walk amid the dangers which encompass me. I am all attention, madam. My name is Helen Stoner, and I am living with my stepfather, who is the last survivor of one of the oldest Saxon families in England, the Royalots of Stoke Moran, on the western border of Surrey. Holmes nodded his head. The name is familiar to me, said he. The family was at one time among the richest in England, and the estates extended over the borders into Berkshire, into the north, and Hampshire in the west. In the last century, however, four successive heirs were of a dissolute and wasteful disposition, and the family ruin was eventually completed by a gambler in the days of the Regency. Nothing was left save a few acres of ground and the 200-year-old house, which is itself crushed under a heavy mortgage. The last squire dragged out his existence there, living the horrible life out of an aristocratic pauper, but his only son, my stepfather, seeing that he must adapt himself to the new conditions, obtained an advance from a relative, which enabled him to take a medical degree and went out to Calcutta, where, by his professional skill and his force of character, he established a large practice. In a fit of anger, however, caused by some robberies which have been perpetrated in the house, he beat his butler to death and narrowly escaped a capital sentence. As it was, he suffered a long term of imprisonment, and afterwards returned to England a morose and disappointed man. When Dr. Roylott was in India, he married my mother, Mrs. Stoner, the young widow of Major General Stoner of the Bengal Artillery. My sister Julia and I were twins, and we were only two years old at the time of my mother's remarriage. She had a considerable sum of money, not less than £1,000 a year, and this she bequeathed to Dr. Roylott entirely while we resided with him, with a provision that a certain annual sum should be allowed to each of us in the event of our marriage. Shortly after our return to England, my mother died. She was killed eight years ago in a railway accident near Crewe. Dr. Royalot then abandoned his attempts to establish himself in practice in London and took us to live with him in the old ancestral house at Stoke Moran. The money which my mother had left was enough for all our wants and there seemed to be no obstacle to our happiness. But a terrible change came over our stepfather about this time. Instead of making friends and exchanging visits with our neighbours, who had at first been overjoyed to see a Royalot of Stoke Moran, back into the old family seat. He shut himself up in his house and seldom came out save to indulge in ferocious quarrels with whoever might cross his path. Violence of temper approaching to mania has been hereditary in the men of the family, and in my stepfather's case it had, I believe, been intensified by his long residence in the tropics. A series of disgraceful brawls took place, two of which ended in the police court until at last he became the terror of the village and the folks would fly at his approach, for he is a man of immense strength and absolutely uncontrollable in his anger. Last week, he hurled the local blacksmith over a parapet into a stream, and it was only by paying over all the money which I could gather together that I was able to avert another public exposure. He had no friends at all save the wandering Romani and he would give them leave to encamp upon the few acres of bramble-covered land which represent the family estate, and would accept in return the hospitality of their tents, wandering away with them sometimes for weeks on end. He has a passion also for Indian animals, which are sent over to him by a correspondent, and he has at this moment a cheetah and a baboon, which wander freely over his gardens, and are fared by the villagers almost as much as their master. You can imagine from what I say that my poor sister Julia and I had no great pleasure in our lives. No servant would stay with us, and for a long time we did all the work of the house. She was but thirty at the time of her death, and yet her hair had already begun to whiten, even as mine has. Your sister is dead then? She died just two years ago, and it is of her death that I wish to speak to you. You can understand that, living the life which I have described, We were little likely to see anyone of our own age and position. We had, however, an aunt, my mother's maiden sister, Miss Honoria Westvale, who lives near Harrow, and we were occasionally allowed to pay short visits at this lady's house. Julia went there at Christmas two years ago and met there a half-pay major of Marines, to whom she became engaged. My stepfather learned of the engagement when my sister returned and offered no objection to the marriage. But within a fortnight of the day which had been fixed for the wedding, the terrible event occurred which has deprived me of my only companion. Sherlock Holmes had been leaning back in his chair with his eyes closed, and his head sunk in a cushion, but he half opened his lids now and glanced across at his visitor. Pray, be precise as to the details, said he. It is easy for me to do so for every event of that dreadful time is seared into my memory. The manor house is, as I have already said, very old, and only one wing is now inhabited. The bedrooms in this wing are on the ground floor, the sitting rooms being in the central block of the buildings. Of these bedrooms, the first is Dr. Roylott's, the second my sister's, and the third my own. There is no communication between them, but they all open out into the same corridor.
1: Do I make myself plain? Perfectly so. The windows of the three rooms open out upon the lawn. That fatal night,
0: Dr. Roylott had gone to his room early, though we knew that he had not retired to rest, for my sister was troubled by the smell of the strong cigars which it has been his custom to smoke. She left her room, therefore, and came into mine, where she sat for some time, chatting about her approaching wedding. At eleven o'clock, she rose to leave me, but she paused at the door and looked back. Tell me, Helen, said she, have you ever heard anyone whistle in the dead of night?
1: Never, said I. I suppose that you could not possibly whistle yourself in your sleep. Certainly not. But why?
0: Because during the last few nights I have always, about three in the morning, heard a low, clear whistle. I am a light sleeper and it has awakened me. I cannot tell where it came from, perhaps from the next room, perhaps from the lawn. I thought that I would just ask you whether you had heard it. No, I have not. It must be those wretched romany in the plantation. Very likely.
1: And yet, if it were on the lawn, I wonder that you did not hear it also. Ah, but I sleep more heavily than you.
0: Well, it is of no great consequence at any rate. She smiled back at me, closed my door, and a few moments later, I heard her key turn in the lock. Indeed, said Holmes, was it your custom always to lock yourselves in at night? Always. And why? I think that I mentioned to you that the doctor kept a cheetah and a baboon. We had no feeling of security unless our doors were locked. Quite so. Pray proceed with your statement. I could not sleep that night. A vague feeling of impending misfortune impressed me. My sister and I, you will recollect, were twins, and you know how subtle are the links which bind two souls which are so closely allied. It was a wild night. The wind was howling outside and the rain was beating and splashing against the windows. Suddenly, amid all the hubbub of the gale, there burst forth the wild scream of a terrified woman. I knew that it was my sister's voice. I sprang from my bed, wrapped a shawl around me, and rushed into the corridor. As I opened my door, I seemed to hear a low whistle, such as my sister described, and a few moments later a clanging sound, as if a mass of metal had fallen. As I ran down the passage, my sister's door was unlocked and revolved slowly upon its hinges. I stared at it, horror-stricken. Not knowing what was about to issue from it. By the light of the corridor lamp, I saw my sister appear at the opening, her face blanched with terror, her hands groping for help, her whole figure swaying to and fro like that of a drunkard. I ran to her and threw my arms round her, but at that moment her knees seemed to give way, and she fell to the ground. She writhed as one who is in terrible pain, and her limbs were dreadfully convulsed. At first I thought that she had not recognized me, but as I bent over her, she suddenly shrieked out in a voice which I shall never forget. Oh my God, Helen, it was the band, the speckled band. There was something else which she would fain have said. And she stabbed with her finger into the air in the direction of the doctor's room, but a fresh convulsion seized her and choked her words. I rushed out, calling loudly for my stepfather and I met him hastening from his room in his dressing gown. When he reached my sister's side, she was unconscious, and though he poured brandy down her throat and sent for medical aid from the village, all efforts were in vain, for she slowly sank and died without having recovered her consciousness. Such was the dreadful end of my beloved sister. One moment, said Holmes. Are you sure about this whistle and metallic sound? Could you swear to it? That was what the county coroner asked me at the inquiry. It is my strong impression that I heard it, and yet, among the crash of the gale and the creaking of an old house, I may possibly have been deceived. Was your sister dressed? No, she was in her nightdress. In her right hand was found the charred stump of a match, and in her left, a matchbox, showing that she had struck a light and looked about her when the alarm took place. That is important. And what conclusions did the coroner come to? He investigated the case with great care for Dr. Roylott's conduct had long been notorious in the county, but he was unable to find any satisfactory cause of death. My evidence showed that the door had been fastened upon the inner side and the windows were blocked by old-fashioned shutters with broad iron bars, which were secured every night. The walls were carefully sounded and were shown to be quite solid all round and the flooring was also thoroughly examined with the same result. The chimney is wide, but it is barred up by four large staples. It is certain, therefore, that my sister was quite alone when she met her end. Besides, there were no marks of any violence upon her. How about poison?
1: The doctors examined her for it, but without success. What do you think that this unfortunate lady died of, then?
0: It is my belief that she died of pure fear and nervous shock, though what it is that frightened her, I cannot imagine. Were there Romani in the plantation at the time? Yes, there were nearly always some. Ah, and what did you gather from this allusion to a band, a speckled band? Sometimes I have thought that it was merely the wild talk of delirium, sometimes that it may have referred to some band of people perhaps these very Romani in the plantation. I do not know whether the spotted handkerchiefs, which so many of them wear over their heads, might have suggested this strange adjective which she used. Holmes shook his head like a man who was far from being satisfied. These are very deep waters, he said. Pray, go on with your narrative. Two years have passed since then, and my life has been, until lately, lonelier than ever. A month ago, however, a dear friend whom I have known for many years has done me the honour to ask my hand in marriage. His name is Armitage, Percy Armitage, the second son of Mr. Armitage of Cranewater, near Reading. My stepfather has offered no opposition to the match, and we are to be married in the course of the spring. Two days ago, some repairs were started in the west wing of the building, and my bedroom wall has been pierced so that I've had to move into the chamber in which my sister died, and to sleep in the very bed in which she slept. Imagine then my thrill of terror when last night, as I lay awake, thinking over her terrible fate, I suddenly heard in the silence of the night the low whistle which had been the herald of her own death. I sprang up and lit the lamp, but nothing was to be seen in the room. I was too shaken to go to bed again, however, so I dressed. And as soon as it was daylight, I slipped down, got a dog cart at the Crown Inn, which is opposite, and drove to Leatherhead. From whence, I have come on this morning with the one object of seeing you and asking your advice. You have
1: done wisely, said my friend. But have you told me all? Yes, all. Miss Roylott, you have not. You are screening your stepfather. Why, what do you mean? For answer...
0: Holmes pushed back the frill of black lace which fringed the hand that lay upon our visitor's knee. Five little livid spots, the marks of four fingers and a thumb, were printed upon the white wrist. You have been cruelly used, said Holmes. The lady coloured deeply and covered over her injured wrist. He's a hard man, she said, and perhaps he hardly knows his own strength. There was a long silence during which Holmes leaned his chin upon his hands and stared into the crackling fire. "'This is a very deep business,' he said at last. "'There are a thousand details which I should desire to know "'before I decide upon our course of action. "'Yet we have not a moment to lose. "'If we were to come to Stoke Moran today, "'would it be possible for us to see over these rooms "'without the knowledge of your stepfather?' "'As it happens, he spoke of coming into town today "'upon some most important business.' It is probable that he will be away all day and that there will be nothing to disturb you. We have a housekeeper now, but she
1: is old and foolish, and I could easily get her out of the way. Excellent. You are not averse to this trip, Watson? By no means. Then we shall both come. What are you going to do yourself? I have
0: one or two things which I wish to do now that I am in town, but I shall return by the twelve o'clock train, so as to be there in time for your coming. "'And you may expect us early in the afternoon. "'I have myself some small business matters to attend to. "'Will you not wait and breakfast?' "'No, I must go. "'My heart is lightened already since I have confided my trouble to you. "'I shall look forward to seeing you again this afternoon.' "'She dropped her thick black veil over her face and glided from the room. "'And what do you think of it all, Watson?' asked Holmes, "'leaning back in his chair.' It seems to me to be a most dark and sinister business. Dark enough and sinister enough. Yet if the lady is correct in saying that the flooring and walls are sound and the door, window and chimney are impassable, then her sister must have been undoubtedly alone when she met her mysterious end. What becomes then of these nocturnal whistles and what are the very peculiar words of the dying woman? I cannot think. When you combine the ideas of Whistles at Night, the presence of a band of Romani who are on intimate terms with this old doctor, the fact that we have every reason to believe that the doctor has an interest in preventing his stepdaughter's marriage, the dying allusion to a band, and finally the fact that Miss Helen Stoner heard a metallic clang, which might have been caused by one of those metal bars that secured the shutters falling back into place, I think that there is good ground to think that the mystery may be cleared along these lines.
1: But what, then, did the Romani do? I cannot imagine. I see many objections to any such theory. And so do I.
0: It is precisely for that reason that we are going to stoke Moran this day. I want to see whether the objections are fatal, or if they may be explained away. But what in the name of the devil? The ejaculation had been drawn from my companion by the fat that our door had been suddenly dashed open and that a huge man had framed himself in the aperture. His costume was a peculiar mixture of the professional and of the agricultural, having a black top hat, a long frock coat and a pair of high gaiters with a hunting crop swinging in his hand. So tall was he that his hat actually brushed the crossbar of the doorway and his breath seemed to span it across from side to side. A large face seared with a thousand wrinkles, burned with the sun and marked with every evil passion, was turned from one to the other of us, while his deep-set, bow-shot eyes and his high, thin, fleshless nose gave him somewhat the appearance of a fierce old bird of prey. Which of you is Holmes? asked this apparition. My name, sir, but you have the advantage of me, said my companion quietly. I am Dr. Grimesby-Royalot of Stoke Moran. Indeed, doctor, said Holmes blandly. Pray, take a seat. I will do nothing of the kind. My stepdaughter has been here. I have traced her. What has she been saying to you? It is a little cold for the time of year, said Holmes. What has she been saying to you, screamed the old man furiously. But I have heard that the crocuses promise well, continued my companion. You put me off, do you? said our new visitor, taking a step forward and shaking his hunting crop. I know you, you scoundrel. I have heard of you before. You are Holmes, the meddler. My friend smiled. Holmes, the busybody. His smile broadened. Holmes, the Scotland Yard Jack in Office. Holmes chuckled heartily. Your conversation is most entertaining, said he. When you go out, close the door for there is a decided draft. I will go when I have said my say. Don't you dare to meddle with my affairs. I know that Miss Stoner has been here. I traced her. I am a dangerous man to fall foul of. See here. He stepped forward swiftly, seized the poker, and bent it into a curve with his huge hands. See that you keep yourself out of my grip, he snarled, and hurling the twisted poker into the fireplace, he strode out of the room. He seems a very amiable person, said Holmes, laughing. I'm not quite so bulky, but if he had remained I might have shown him that my grip was not much more feeble than his own. As he spoke, he picked up the steel poker and with a sudden effort straightened it out again. Fancy his having the insolence to confound me with the official detective force. This incident gives zest to our investigation, however and I only trust that our little friend will not suffer from her imprudence in allowing this brute to trace her. And now, Watson, we shall order breakfast, and afterwards I shall walk down to Dr's Common, where I hope to get some data which might help us in this matter. It was nearly one o'clock when Sherlock Holmes returned from his excursion. He held in his hand a sheet of blue paper, scrawled over with notes and figures. I've seen the will of the deceased wife, said he to determine its exact meaning i have been obliged to work out the present prices of the investments with which it is concerned the total income which at the time of the wife's death was little short of 1100 pounds is now through the fall in agricultural prices not more than 750 pounds each daughter can claim an income of 250 pounds in case of marriage it is evident therefore that if both girls are married This beauty would have had a mere pittance, while even one of them would cripple him to a very serious extent. My morning's work was not wasted, since it has proved that he has the very strongest motives for standing in the way of anything of the sort. And now, Watson, this is too serious for dawdling, especially as the old man is aware that we are interesting ourselves in his affairs. So if you are ready, we shall call a cab and drive to Waterloo. I should be very much obliged if you would slip your revolver into your pocket. An alias number two is an excellent argument with gentlemen who can twist steel pokers into knots. That and a toothbrush are, I think, all that are needed. At Waterloo, we were fortunate to catch a train for Leatherhead, where we hired a trap at the station inn and drove for four or five miles through the lovely Surrey lanes. It was a perfect day. "'with a bright sun and a few fleecy clouds in the heavens. "'The trees and wayside hedges "'were just throwing out their first green shoots, "'and the air was full of the pleasant smell of the moist earth. "'To me, at least, there was a strange contrast "'between the sweet promise of the spring "'and this sinister quest upon which we were engaged. "'My companion sat in the front of the trap, "'his arms folded, his hat pulled down over his eyes.' and his chin sunk upon his breast, buried in the deepest thought. Suddenly, however, he started, tapped me on the shoulder, and pointed over the meadows. Look there, said he, a heavily timbered park, stretched up in a gentle slope, thickening into a grove at the highest point. From amid the branches there jutted out of the gables, and high roof tree of a very old mansion. Stoke Moran, said he. Yes, sir. That be the house of Dr. Grimesby-Royalot, remarked the driver. There is some building going on there, said Holmes. That is where we are going. There's the village, said the driver, pointing to a cluster of roofs some distance to the left. But if you want to get to the house, you'll find it shorter to get over this stile, and so by the footpath over the fields. There it is, where the lady is walking. And the lady, I fancy, is Miss Stoner observed Holmes, shading his eyes. Yes, I think we had better do as you suggest. We got off, paid our fare, and the trap rattled back on its way to Leatherhead. I thought it as well, said Holmes as we climbed the stile, that this fellow should think we had come here as architects or on some definite business. It may stop his gossip. Good afternoon, Miss Stoner. You see that we have been as good as our word. Our client of the morning had hurried forward to meet us, with a face which spoke her joy. I've been waiting so eagerly for you, she cried, shaking hands with us warmly. All has turned out splendidly. Dr. Roylott has gone to town, and it is unlikely that he will be back before evening. We have had the pleasure of making the doctor's acquaintance, said Holmes. And in a few words he sketched out what had occurred. Miss stoner turned white to the lips as she listened. Good heavens, she cried. He has followed me then, so it appears. He is so cunning that I never know when I am safe from him. What will he say when he returns? He must guard himself, for he may find that there is someone more cunning than himself upon his track. You must lock yourself up from him tonight. If he is violent, we shall take you away to your aunt's at Harrow. Now, we must make the best use of our time, so kindly, take us at once to the rooms which we are to examine. The building was of a grey, lichen blotched stone, with a high central portion and two curving wings, like the claws of a crab, thrown out on each side. In one of these wings, the windows were broken and blocked with wooden boards, while the roof was partly caved in, a picture of ruin. The central portion was in little better repair, but the right hand block was comparatively modern, and the blinds in the windows, with the blue smoke curling up from the chimneys, show that this was where the family resided. Some scaffolding had been erected against the end wall, and the stonework had been broken into, but there were no signs of any workmen at the moment of our visit. Holmes walked slowly up and down the ill-trimmed lawn and examined with deep attention the outsides of the windows. This, I take it, belongs to the room in which you used to sleep, the centre one to your sister's and the one next to the main building to Dr. Roylott's chamber. Exactly so, but I am now sleeping in the middle one, pending the alterations as I understand. By the way, there does not seem to be any very pressing need for repairs at that end wall. There were none. I believe that it was an excuse to move me from my room. Ah, that is suggestive. Now on the other side of this narrow wing runs the corridor from which these three rooms open. There are windows in it, of course. Yes, but very small ones. Too narrow for anyone to pass through. As you both locked your doors at night, your rooms were unapproachable from that side. Now, would you have the kindness to go into your room and bar the shutters? Miss Stoner did so, and Holmes, after a careful examination through the open window, endeavoured in every way to force the shutter open, but without success. There was no slit through which a knife could be passed to raise the bar. Then, with his lens, he tested the hinges, but they were of solid iron, built firmly into the massive masonry. Hmm, said he, scratching his chin in some perplexity. My theory certainly presents some difficulties. No one could pass these shutters if they were bolted. Well, we shall see if the inside throws any light upon the matter. A small side door led into the whitewashed corridor from which the three bedrooms opened. Holmes refused to examine the third chamber, so we passed once to the second, that in which Miss Stoner was now sleeping and in which her sister had met with her fate. It was a homely little room with a low ceiling and a gaping fireplace after the fashion of old country houses. A brown chest of drawers stood in one corner a narrow white counterpane bed in another, and a dressing table on the left-hand side of the window. These articles with two small wicker-work chairs made up all the furniture in the room, save for a square of Wilton carpet in the centre. The boards round and the panelling of the walls were of brown, worm-eaten oak, so old and discoloured that it might have dated from the original building of the house. Holmes drew one of the chairs into a corner and sat silent, while his eyes travelled round and round and up and down, taking in every detail of the apartment. Where does that bell communicate with? He asked, at last, pointing to a thick bell rope which hung down beside the bed, the tassel actually lying upon the pillow. It goes to the housekeeper's room. It looks newer than the other things. Yes, it was only put there a couple of years ago. Your sister asked for it, I suppose? No, I never heard of her using it. We always used to get what we wanted for ourselves. Indeed, it seemed unnecessary to put so nice a bell pole there. You will excuse me for a few minutes while I satisfy myself as to this floor. He threw himself down upon his face with his lens in his hand and crawled swiftly, backward and forward, examining minutely the cracks between the boards. Then he did the same with the woodwork with which the chamber was panelled. Finally, he walked over to the bed and spent some time in staring at it and in running his eye up and down the wall. Finally, he took the bell rope in his hand and gave it a brisk tug. Why, it's a dummy, said he. Won't it ring? No, it is not even attached to a wire. This is very interesting. You can see now that it is fastened to a hook, just above where the little opening for the ventilator is. How very absurd. I never noticed that before. Very strange, muttered Holmes, pulling at the rope. There are one or two very singular points about this room. For example, what a fool a builder must be to open a ventilator into another room, when, with the same trouble, he might have communicated with the outside air. That is also quite modern, said the lady. Done about the same time as the bell rope? remarked Holmes. Yes, there were several little changes carried out about that time. They seem to have been of a most interesting character dummy bell ropes and ventilators which do not ventilate. With your permission, Miss Stoner, we shall now carry our researches into the inner apartment. Dr. Grimesby's Royal Ots chamber was larger than that of his stepdaughter, but was as plainly furnished. A camp bed, a small wooden shelf full of books, mostly of technical character, an armchair beside the bed, a plain wooden chair against the wall, a round table, and a large iron safe were the principal things which met the eye. Holmes walked slowly round and examined each and all of them with the keenest interest. What's in here? he asked, tapping the safe. My stepfather's business papers. Oh, you've seen inside, then. Only once, some years ago. I
1: remember that it was full of papers. There isn't a cat in it, for example. No, what a strange idea. Well, look at this. He took up a small saucer of milk which stood on the top of it. No, we
0: don't keep a cat, but there is a cheetah and a baboon. Ah, yes, of course. Well, a cheetah is just a big cat. And yet, a saucer of milk does not go very far in satisfying its wants, I dare say. There is one point which I should wish to determine. He squatted down in front of the wooden chair and examined the seat of it with the greatest attention. Thank you. That is quite settled, said he, rising and putting his lens in his pocket. Hello. Here is something interesting. The object which had caught his eye was a small dog lash hung on one corner of the bed. The lash, however, was curled upon itself and tied so as to make a loop of whipcord. What do you make of that, Watson? It's a common enough lash, but I don't know why it should be tied. That is not quite so common, is it? Ah, me. It's a wicked world, and when a clever man turns his brains to crime, it is the worst of all. I think I have seen enough now, Miss Stoner, and with your permission, we shall walk out upon the lawn. I never seen my friend's face so grim or his brow so dark as it was when we turned from the scene of this investigation. We had walked several times up and down the lawn, neither Miss Stoner or myself liking to break in upon his thoughts before he roused himself from his reverie. It is very essential, Miss Stoner, said he, that you should absolutely follow my advice in every respect. I shall most certainly do so. The matter is too serious for any hesitation. Your life may depend upon your compliance. I assure you that I am in your hands. In the first place, both my friend and I must spend the night in your room. Both Miss Stoner and I gazed at him in astonishment. Yes, it must be so. Let me explain. I believe that that is the village inn over there? Yes, that is the crown. Very good. Your windows would be visible from there? Certainly. You must confine yourself to your room, on pretence of a headache, when your stepfather comes back. Then, when you hear him retire for the night, you must open the shutters of your window, undo the hasp, put your lamp there as a signal to us, and then withdraw quietly with everything which you are likely to want into the room which you used to occupy. I have no doubt that, in spite of the repairs, you could manage there for one night.
1: Oh, yes, easily. The rest. You will leave in our hands. But what will you do? We shall spend the night in your room, and we
0: shall investigate the cause of this noise which has disturbed you. I believe, Mr. Holmes, that you have already made up your mind, said Miss Stoner, laying her hand upon my
1: companion's sleeve. Perhaps I have. Then, for pity's sake, tell me what was the cause of my sister's death. I
0: should prefer to have clear proofs before I speak. You can at least tell me whether my own thought is correct, and if she died from some sudden fright. No, I do not think so. I think that there was probably some more tangible cause. And now, Miss Storner, we must leave you, for if Dr. Roylott returned and saw us, our journey would be in vain. Goodbye, and be brave, for if you will do what I have told you, you may rest assured that we shall drive away the dangers that threaten you. Sherlock Holmes and I had no difficulty in engaging a bedroom and sitting room at the Crown Inn. They were on the top floor, and from our window we could command a view of the avenue gate and of the inhabited wing of Stoke Moran Manor House. At dusk, we saw Dr. Grimesby Roylott drive past, his huge form looming up beside the little figure of the lad who drove him. The boy had some difficulty in undoing the heavy iron gates, and we heard the hoarse roar of the doctor's voice, and saw the fury with which he shook his clenched fists at him. The trap drove on, and a few minutes later, we saw a sudden light spring up among the trees, as the lamp was lit in one of the sitting rooms. Do you know, Watson, said Holmes, as we sat together in the gathering darkness, I really have some scruples as to taking you tonight. There is a distinct element of danger. Can I be of assistance? Your presence might be invaluable. Then I shall certainly come. It is very kind of you. You speak of danger. You have evidently seen more in these rooms than was visible to me. No, but I fancy that I may have deduced a little more. I imagine that you saw all that I did. I saw nothing remarkable save the bell rope. And what purpose that could answer, I confess, is more than I can imagine. You saw the ventilator too? Yes, but I do not think that it is such a very unusual thing to have a small opening between two rooms. It was so small that a rat could hardly pass through. I knew that we should find a ventilator before ever we came to Stoke Moran. My dear Holmes. Oh yes, I did. You remember in her statement she said that her sister could smell Dr. Roylott's cigar. Now, of course, that suggested at once that there must be a communication between the rooms. It could only be a small one, or it would have been remarked upon at the coroner's inquiry. I deduced a ventilator. What harm can there be in that? Well, there is at least a curious coincidence of dates. A ventilator is made, a cord is hung, and a lady who sleeps in the bed dies. Does not that strike you? I cannot as yet see any connection. Did you observe anything very peculiar about that bed? No. It was clamped to the floor. Did you ever see a bed fastened like that before? I cannot say that I have. The lady could not move her bed. It must always be in the same relative position to the ventilator and to the rope, or so we may call it, since it was clearly never meant for a bell pull. Holmes. I cried. I seem to see dimly what you're hinting at. We are only just in time to prevent some subtle and horrible crime. Subtle enough, and horrible enough. When a doctor does go wrong, he is the first of criminals. He has nerve, and he has knowledge. Palmer and Pritchard were among the heads of their profession. This man strikes even deeper. But I think, Watson, that we shall be able to strike deeper still but we shall have horrors enough before the night is over. For goodness sake, let us have a quiet pipe and turn our minds for a few hours to something more cheerful. At nine o'clock, the light among the trees was extinguished and all was dark in the direction of the manor house. Two hours passed slowly away and then suddenly, just at the stroke of eleven, a single bright light shone out right in front of us. That is our signal, said Holmes, springing to his feet. It comes from the middle window. As we passed out, he exchanged a few words with the landlord, explaining that we were going on a late visit to an acquaintance, and that it was possible that we might spend the night there. A moment later, we were out on the dark road, a chill wind blowing in our faces, and one yellow light twinkling in front of us through the gloom to guide us on our sombre errand. There was a little difficulty in entering the gardens. For unrepaired breaches gaped in the old park wall. Making our way among the trees, we reached the lawn, crossed it, and were about to enter through the window when, out from a clump of laurel bushes, there darted what seemed to be a hideous and distorted child who threw itself upon the grass with writhing limbs and then ran swiftly across the lawn into the darkness. My God, I whispered, did you see it? Holmes, was for the moment as startled as I. His hand closed like a vice upon my wrist in his agitation. Then he broke into a low laugh and put his lips to my ear. It is a nice household, he murmured. That is the baboon. I had forgotten the strange pets which the doctor affected. There was a cheetah too. Perhaps we might find it upon our shoulders at any moment. I confess that I felt easier in my mind when... After following Holmes's example and slipping off my shoes, I found myself inside the bedroom. My companion noiselessly closed the shutters, moved the lamp onto the table, and cast his eyes round the room. All was as we'd seen it in the daytime. Then, creeping up to me and making a trumpet of his hand, he whispered into my ear again so gently that it was all that I could do to distinguish the words. The least sound would be fatal to our plans. I nodded to show that I had heard. We must sit without light. He
1: would see it through the ventilator. I nodded again. Do not go asleep. sleep. Your very life may depend upon it. Have your pistol ready in case we should need it. I will sit on the side of the bed
0: and you in that chair. I took up my revolver and laid it on the corner of the table. Holmes had brought up a long, thin cane, and this he placed upon the bed beside him. By it he laid the box of
1: matches and the stump of a candle. Then he turned down the lamp, and we were left in darkness. How shall I ever forget that dreadful vigil? I could not hear a sound, not even the drawing of a breath, and
0: yet I knew that my companion sat open-eyed within a few feet of me, in the same state of nervous tension in which I was myself. The shutters cut off the least ray of light, and we waited in absolute darkness. From outside came the occasional cry of a nightbird, and once at our very window a long-drawn cat-like whine, which told us that the cheetah was indeed at liberty. Far away we could hear the deep tones of the parish clock, which boomed out every quarter of an hour. How long they seemed, those quarters. Twelve struck, and one, and two, and three, and still we sat, waiting silently for whatever might befall. Suddenly, there was the momentary gleam of a light up in the direction of the ventilator, which vanished immediately, but was succeeded by a strong smell of burning oil and heated metal. Someone in the next room had lit a dark lantern. I heard a gentle sound of movement, and then all was silent once more, though the smell grew stronger. For half an hour I sat with straining ears, then suddenly another sound became audible, a very gentle, soothing sound, like that of a small jet of steam, escaping continually from a kettle. The instant we heard it, Holmes sprang from the bed, struck a match, and lashed furiously with his cane at the bell pole. You see it, Watson? He yelled you see it? But I saw nothing. At the moment when Holmes struck the light, I heard a low, clear whistle, but the sudden glare flashing into my weary eyes made it impossible for me to tell what it was at which my friend lashed so savagely. I could, however, see that his face was deadly pale and filled with horror and loathing. He had ceased to strike and was gazing up at the ventilator, when suddenly there broke from the silence of the night, the most horrible cry to which I have ever listened. It swelled up louder and louder, a hoarse yell of pain and fear and anger, all mingled in the one dreadful shriek. They say that away down in the village, and even in the distant parsonage, that cry raised the sleepers from their beds. It struck cold to our hearts, and I stood gazing at Holmes, and he at me, until the last echoes of it had died away into the silence from which it rose. What can it mean? I gasped. It means that it is all over, Holmes answered. And perhaps, after all, it is for the best. Take your pistol, and we will enter Dr. Roylett's room. With a grave face, he lit the lamp and led the way down the corridor. Twice, he struck at the chamber door without any reply from within. Then he turned the handle and entered, I at his heels, with the cocked pistol in my hand. It was a singular sight which met our eyes. On the table stood a dark lantern with the shutter half open, throwing a brilliant beam of light upon the iron safe, the door of which was ajar. Beside this table, on the wooden chair, sat Dr. Grimesby Roylott, clad in a long grey dressing gown, his bare ankles protruding beneath and his feet thrust into red, heelless Turkish slippers. Across his lap lay the short stock with the long lash which we had noticed during the day. His chin was cocked upward, and his eyes were fixed in a dreadful, rigid stare at the corner of the ceiling. Round his brow he had a peculiar yellow band with brownish speckles which seemed to be bound tightly round his head. As we entered, he made neither sound nor motion. The band, the speckled band, whispered Holmes. I took a step forward. In an instant, his strange headgear began to move, and there reared itself from among his hair the squat, diamond-shaped head and puffed neck of a loathsome serpent. It is a swamp adder, cried Holmes, the deadliest snake in India. He has died within ten seconds of being bitten. Violence does, in truth, recoil upon the violent, and the schemer falls into the pit which he digs for another. Let us thrust this creature back into its den, and we can then remove Miss Stoner to some place of shelter and let the county police know what has happened. As he spoke, he drew the dog whip swiftly from the dead man's lap, and throwing the noose round the reptile's neck, he drew it from its horrid perch, and carrying it at arm's length, threw it into the iron safe, which he closed upon it. Such are the true facts of the death of Dr. Grimesby Roylott of Stoke Moran. It is not necessary that I should prolong a narrative which has already run to too great a length by telling how we broke the sad news to the terrified girl, how we conveyed her by the morning train to the care of her good aunt at Harrow, or the slow process of official inquiry, came to the conclusion that the doctor met his fate while indiscreetly playing with a dangerous pet. The little which I had yet to learn of the case was told to me by Sherlock Holmes as we travelled back next day. I had said he come to an entirely erroneous conclusion which shows my dear Watson, how dangerous it always is to reason from insufficient data. The presence of the Romany and the use of the word "band," which was used by the poor girl, no doubt to explain their parents, which she had caught a hurried glimpse of by the light of her match, were sufficient to put me out upon an entirely wrong scent. I can only claim the merit that I instantly reconsidered my position, when, however, it became clear to me that whatever danger threatened an occupant of that room could not come either from the window or the door. My attention was speedily drawn, as I have already remarked to you, to this ventilator and to the bell rope which hung down to the bed. The discovery that this was a dummy and that the bed was clamped to the floor Instantly gave rise to the suspicion that the rope was there as a bridge for something passing through the hole and coming to the bed. The idea of a snake instantly occurred to me, and when I coupled it with my knowledge that the doctor was furnished with a supply of creatures from India, I felt that I was probably on the right track. The idea of using a form of poison which could not possibly be discovered by any chemical test was just such a one as would occur to a clever and ruthless man who had had an eastern training. The rapidity with which such poison would take effect would also, from his point of view, be an advantage. It would be a sharp-eyed coroner indeed who could distinguish the two little dark punctures which would show where the poison fangs had done their work. Then I thought of the whistle. Of course, he must recall the snake before the morning light revealed it to the victim. He had trained it, probably by the use of the milk which we saw, to return to him when summoned. He would put it through this ventilator at the hour that he thought best, with the certainty that it would crawl down the rope and land on the bed. It might or might not bite the occupant. Perhaps she might escape every night for a week. But sooner or later, she must fall victim. I had come to these conclusions before ever I had entered his room. An inspection of his chair showed me that he had been in the habit of standing on it, which of course would be necessary, in order that he should reach the ventilator. The sight of the safe, the saucer of milk, and the loop of whipcord were enough to finally dispel any doubts which may have remained. The metallic clang heard by Miss Stoner was obviously caused by her stepfather hastily closing the door of his safe upon its terrible occupant. Having once made up my mind, you know the steps which I took in order to put the matter to the proof. I heard the creature hiss, as I have no doubt that you did too and I instantly lit the light and attacked it, with the result of driving it through the ventilator, and also with the result of causing it to turn upon its master the other side. Some of the blows of my cane came home and roused its snakish temper so that it flew upon the first person it saw. In this way, I am no doubt indirectly responsible for Dr. Grimesby-Roylott's death,
1: and I cannot say that it is likely to weigh very heavily upon my conscience. The Red-Headed League. I had called upon my friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, one day in the
0: autumn of last year, and found him in deep conversation with a very stout, florid-faced, elderly gentleman with fiery red hair. With an apology for my intrusion, I was about to withdraw when Holmes pulled me abruptly into the room and closed the door behind me. You could not possibly have come at a better time, my dear Watson, he said cordially.
1: I was afraid that you were engaged. So I am, very much so. Then I can wait in the next room. Not at all.
0: This gentleman, Mr. Wilson, has been my partner and helper in many of my most successful cases, and I have no doubt that he will be of the utmost use to me in yours also. The stout gentleman half rose from his chair and gave a bob of greeting with a quick little questioning glance from his small, fat encircled eyes. Try the city, said Holmes, relapsing into his armchair and putting his fingertips together, as was his custom when in judicial moods. I know, my dear Watson, that you share my love of all that is bizarre and outside the conventions and humdrum routine of everyday life. You've shown your relish for it by the enthusiasm which has prompted you to chronicle, and, if you will excuse my saying so, somewhat to embellish so many of my own little adventures. Your cases have indeed been of the greatest interest to me, I observed. You will remember that I remarked the other day, just before we went into the very simple problem presented by Miss Mary Sutherland, that for strange effects and extraordinary combinations, we must go to life itself, which is always far more daring than any effort of the imagination, a proposition which I took the liberty of doubting. You did, Doctor. But nonetheless, you must come round to my view, for otherwise I shall keep on piling fact upon fact on you until your reason breaks down under them and acknowledges me to be right. Now, Mr. Jabez Wilson here has been good enough to call upon me this morning and to begin a narrative which promises to be one of the most singular which I have listened to for some time. You've heard me remark that the strangest and most unique things are very often connected not with the larger, but with the smaller crimes, and occasionally, indeed, where there is room for doubt whether any positive crime has been committed. As far as I've heard, it is impossible for me to say whether the present case is an instance of crime or not, but the course of events is certainly among the most singular that I've ever listened to. Perhaps, Mr. Wilson, you would have the great kindness to recommence your narrative. I ask you, not merely because my friend Dr. Watson has not heard the opening part, but also because the peculiar nature of the story makes me anxious to have every possible detail from your lips. As a rule, when I've heard some slight indication of the course of events, I'm able to guide myself by the thousands of other similar cases which occur to my memory. In the present instance, I'm forced to admit that the facts are, to the best of my belief, unique. The portly client puffed out his chest with an appearance of some little pride, and pulled a dirty and wrinkled newspaper from the inside pocket of his greatcoat. As he glanced down the advertisement column, with his head thrust forward and the paper flattened out upon his knee, I took a good look at the man and endeavoured, after the fashion of my companion, to read the indications which might be presented by his dress or appearance. I did not gain very much, however, by my inspection. Our visitor bore every mark of being an average commonplace British tradesman, obese, pompous, and slow. He wore rather baggy grey shepherd's check trousers, a not overclean black frock coat, unbuttoned in the front, and a drab waistcoat with a heavy brassy Albert chain, and a square pierced bit of metal dangling down as an ornament. A frayed top hat and a faded brown overcoat with a wrinkled velvet collar lay upon a chair beside him. Altogether, look as I would, there was nothing remarkable about the man save his blazing red head and the expression of extreme chagrin and discontent upon his features. Sherlock Holmes's eye took in my occupation and he shook his head with a smile as he noticed my questioning glances. Beyond the obvious facts that he has at some time done manual labour, that he takes snuff, that he is a Freemason, that he has been in China, and that he has done a considerable amount of writing lately—I can deduce nothing else. Mister Jabez Wilson started up in his chair, with his forefinger upon the paper, and his eyes upon my companion. How, in the name of good fortune, did you know all that, Mister Holmes? He said. How did you know, for example, that I did manual labor? It is true as gospel. For I began as a ship's carpenter. Your hands, my dear sir. Your right hand is quite a size larger than your left. You have worked with it, and the muscles are more developed. Well, the snuff, then, and the Freemasonry. I won't insult your intelligence by telling you how I read that, especially as rather against the strict rules of your order, you use an arc and compass breastpin. Ah, of course, I forgot that. But the writing? What else can be indicated by that right cuff so very shiny for five inches and the left one with the smooth patch near the elbow where you rest it upon the desk? Well, but China. The fish that you have tattooed immediately above your right wrist could only have been done in China. I've made a small study of tattoo marks and have even contributed to the literature of the subject. That trick of staining the fish's scales of a delicate pink is quite peculiar to China. When, in addition, I see a Chinese coin hanging from your watch chain, the matter becomes even more simple. Mr. Jabez Wilson laughed heavily.
1: Well, I never, said he. I thought at first that you had done something clever, but I see there was nothing in it after all. I begin to
0: think, Watson, said Holmes, that I make a mistake in explaining. Omne ignotum pro magnifico, you know and my poor little reputation, such as it is, will suffer shipwreck, if I am so candid. Can you not find the advertisement, Mr. Wilson? Yes, I have got it now, he answered, with his thick red finger planted halfway down the column. Here it is.
1: This is what began it all. You must read it for yourself, sir. I took the paper from him and read as follows. To the red-headed league,
0: on account of the bequest of the late Ezekiah Hopkins, of Lebanon, Pennsylvania, USA. There is now another vacancy open which entitles a member of the league to a salary of four pounds a week for purely nominal services. All red-headed men who are sound in body and mind and above the age of 21 years are eligible apply in person on Monday at 11 o'clock to Duncan Ross, at the offices of the League Seven Pope's Court, Fleet Street. What on earth does this mean? I ejaculated, after I had twice read over the extraordinary announcement. Holmes chuckled and wriggled in his chair, as was his habit when in high spirits. It is a little off the beaten track, isn't it? said he. And now, Mr. Wilson, off you go at scratch and tell us all about yourself, your household, and the effect which this advertisement had upon your fortunes. You will first make a note, Doctor, of the paper and the date. It is the Morning Chronicle of April 27th, 1890, just two months ago. Very good. And Mr. Wilson? Well, it is just as I have been telling you, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, said Jabez Wilson, mopping his forehead. I have a small pawnbroker's business at Coburg Square, near the city. It's not a very large affair, and of late years it has not done more than just give me a living. I used to be able to keep two assistants... Now I only keep one, and I would have a job to pay him, but that he is willing to come for half wages so as to learn the business. What is the name of this obliging youth? asked Sherlock Holmes. His name is Vincent Spaulding, and he's not such a youth either. It's hard to say his age. I should not wish a smarter assistant, Mr. Holmes, and I know very well that he could better himself and earn twice what I'm able to give him. But after all, if he is satisfied, why should I put ideas into his head? Why, indeed. You see, most fortunate in having an employee who comes in under the full market price. It is not a common experience among employers in this age. I don't know that your assistant is not as remarkable as your advertisement. Oh, he has his faults, too, said Mr. Wilson. Never was such a fellow for photography. Snapping away with a camera when he ought to be improving his mind and then diving down into the cellar like a rabbit into its hole
1: to develop his pictures. That is his main fault, but on the whole, he's a good worker. There's no vice in him. He is
0: still with you, I presume? Yes, sir. He and a girl of fourteen who does a bit of simple cooking and keeps the place clean. That's all I have in the house, for I'm a widower and never had any family. We live very quietly, sir, the three of us and we keep a roof over our heads and pay our debts if we do nothing more. The first thing that put us out was that advertisement. Spaulding, he came down into the office, just this day, eight weeks, with his very paper in his hand, and says, I wish to the Lord, Mr. Wilson, that I was a red-headed man. Why that, I asks. Why, says he, here's another vacancy on the league of the red-headed men. It's worth quite a little fortune to any man who gets it, and I understand that there are more vacancies than there are men, so that the trustees are at their wits' end what to do with the money. If my hair could only change colour, here is a nice little crib all ready for me to step into. Why, what is that then? I asked. You see, Mr. Holmes, I'm a very stay-at-home man, and as my business came to me instead of my having to go to it, I was often weeks on end without putting my foot over the doormat. In that way, I didn't know much of what was going on outside, and I was always glad of a bit of news. Have you never heard of the League of the Red-Headed Men? he asked, with his eyes open. Never. Why, I wonder at that, for you are eligible yourself for one of the vacancies. And what are they worth? I asked. Well, merely a couple of hundred a year, but the work is slight and it need not interfere very much with one's other occupations. Well, you can easily think that that made me prick up my ears, for the business has not been over good for some years, and an extra couple of hundred would have been very handy. Tell me all about it, said I. Well, said he, showing me the advertisement, you can see for yourself that the League has a vacancy, and there is the address where you should apply for particulars. As far as I can make out, the League was founded by an American millionaire, Ezekiah Hopkins, who was very peculiar in his ways. He was himself red-headed, and he had a great sympathy for all red-headed men. So when he died, it was found that he had left his enormous fortune in the hands of trustees, with instructions to apply the interest to the providing of easy births to men whose hair is of that color. From all I hear, it is splendid pay and very little to do. But, said I, there would be millions of red-headed men who could apply. Not so many as you think, he answered. You see, it is really confined to Londoners and to grown men. This American had started from London when he was young, and he wanted to do the old town a good turn. Then again, I have heard it is of no use your applying if your hair is light red or dark red or anything but real, bright, blazing, fiery red. Now, if you cared to apply, Mr. Wilson, you would just walk in, but perhaps it would hardly be worth your while to put yourself out of the way for the sake of a few hundred pounds. Now, it is a fact, gentlemen, as you may see for yourselves, that my hair is of a very full and rich tint, so that it seemed to me that if there was to be any competition in that matter, I stood as good a chance as any man that I had ever met. Vincent Spaulding seemed to know so much about it that I thought he might prove useful. So I just ordered him to put up the shutters for the day and to come right away with me. He was very willing to have a holiday, so we shut the business up and started off for the address that was given us in the advertisement. I never hoped to see such a sight as that again, Mr. Holmes. From north, south, east and west, every man who had a shade of red in his hair had tramped into the city to answer the advertisement. Fleet Street was choked with red-headed folk, and Pope's court looked like a coster's orange barrow. I should not have thought there were so many in the whole country as were brought together by that single advertisement. Every shade of colour there were. Straw, lemon, orange, brick, Irish setter, liver, clay. But as Spalling said, there were not many who had the real vivid flame-coloured tint. When I saw how many were waiting, I would have given it up in despair, but Spaulding would not hear of it. How he did it, I could not imagine, but he pushed and pulled and butted until he got me through the crowd and right up to the steps which led to the office. There was a double stream upon the stair, some going up in hope, and some coming back dejected. But we wedged in as well as we could, and soon found ourselves in the office. Your experience has been a most entertaining one, remarked Holmes, as his client paused and refreshed his memory with a huge pinch of snuff. Pray continue your very interesting statement. There was nothing in the office but a couple of wooden chairs and a deal table, behind which sat a small man with a head that was even redder than mine. He said a few words to each candidate as he came up, and then he always managed to find some fault in them which would disqualify them. Getting a vacancy did not seem to be such an easy matter after all. However, when our turn came, the little man was much more favourable to me than to any of the others, and he closed the door as we entered so that he might have a private word with us. "'This is Mr. Jabez Wilson,' said my assistant, "'and he is willing to fill a vacancy in the league.' "'And he is admirably suited for it,' the other answered. "'He has every requirement.' I cannot recall when I have seen anything so fine. He took a step backward, cocked his head on one side, and gazed at my hair until I felt quite bashful. Then suddenly he plunged forward, wrung my hand, and congratulated me warmly on my success. It would be an injustice to hesitate, said he. You will, however, I am sure, excuse me for taking an obvious precaution. With that, he seized my hair in both his hands and tugged until I yelled with the pain. There is water in your eyes, said he, as he released me. I perceive that all is as it should be. But we have to be careful. We have twice been deceived by wigs, and once by paint. I could tell you tales of cobbler's wax which would disgust you with human nature. He stepped over to the window and shouted through it at the top of his voice that the vacancy was filled. A groan of disappointment came up from below, and the folk all trooped away in different directions, until there was not a redhead to be seen, except my own and that of the manager. My name, said he, is Mr. Duncan Ross, and I am myself one of the pensioners upon the fund left by our noble benefactor. Are you a married man, Mr. Wilson? Have you a family? I answered that I had not. His face fell immediately. "Dear me, he said gravely. That is very serious indeed. I am sorry to hear you say that. The fund was, of course, for the propagation and spread of the redheads, as well as for their maintenance. It is exceedingly unfortunate that you should be a bachelor. My face lengthened at this, Mr. Holmes, for I thought that I was not to have the vacancy after all. But after thinking it over for a few minutes, he said that it would be all right. In the case of another, said he, the objection might be fatal, but we must stretch a point in favour of a man with such a head of hair as yours. When shall you be able to enter upon your new duties? Well, it is a little awkward, for I have a business already, said I. Oh, never mind about that, Mr. Wilson, said Vincent Spaulding. I should be able to look after that for you. What would be the hours, I asked. Ten to two. Now, a pawnbroker's business is mostly done of an evening, Mr. Holmes, especially Thursday and Friday evening, which is just before payday. So it would suit me very well to earn a little in the mornings. Besides, I knew that my assistant was a good man
1: and that he would see to anything that turned up. That would suit me very well, said I. And the pay? Is £4 a week. And the work? Is purely nominal. What do you call purely nominal?
0: Well, you have to be in the office, or at least in the building, the whole time. If you leave, you forfeit your whole position forever. The will is very clear upon that point. You don't comply with the conditions, if you budge from the office during that time. It's only four hours a day, and I should not think of leaving, said I. No excuse will avail, said Mr. Duncan Ross, neither sickness nor business or anything else. There you must stay, or you will lose your billet. And the work? Is to copy out the Encyclopedia Britannica. There is the first volume of it in that press. You must find your own ink, pens and blotting paper but we provide this table and chair. Will you be ready tomorrow? Certainly, I answered. Then goodbye, Mr. Jabez Wilson, and let me congratulate you once more on the important position which you have been fortunate enough to gain. He bowed me out of the room and I went home with my assistant, hardly knowing what to say or do. I was so pleased at my own good fortune. Well, I thought over the matter all day, and by evening I was in low spirits again for I had quite persuaded myself that the whole affair must be some great hoax or fraud, though what its object might be I could not imagine. It seemed altogether past belief that anyone could make such a will, or that they would pay such a sum for doing anything so simple as copying out the Encyclopedia Britannica. Vincent Spaulding did what he could to cheer me up, but by bedtime I had reasoned myself out of the whole thing. However, in the morning, I determined to have a look at it anyhow, so I bought a penny bottle of ink, and with a quill pen and seven sheets of full-scat paper, I started off for Pope's court. Well, to my surprise and delight, everything was as right as possible. The table was set out ready for me, and Mr. Duncan Ross was there to see that I got fairly to work. He started me off upon the letter A, and then he left me he would drop in from time to time to see that all was right with me. At two o'clock, he bade me good day, complimented me upon the amount I had written, and locked the door of the office after me. This went on day after day, Mr. Holmes, and on Saturday, the manager came in and planked down four golden sovereigns for my week's work. It was the same next week and the same the week after. Every morning, I was there at ten, and every afternoon, I left at two. By degrees, Mr. Duncan Ross took to coming in only once of a morning, and then after a time, he did not come in at all. Still, of course, I never dared to leave the room for an instant, for I was not sure when he might come, and that the billet was such a good one, and suited me so well, that I would not risk the loss of it. Eight weeks passed away like this, and I had written about abbots and archery, and armour and architecture, and Attica and hoped with diligence that I might get on to the bees before very long. It cost me something in full-scap, and I had pretty nearly filled a shelf with my writings, and then suddenly the whole business came to an end. To an end? Yes, sir. And no later than this morning. I went to my work as usual at ten o'clock, but the door was shut and locked, with a little square of cardboard hammered onto the middle of the panel with a tack. Here it is, and you can read for yourself. He held up a piece of white cardboard about the size of a sheet of notepaper. It read, in this fashion, The red-headed league is dissolved. October 9, 1890. Sherlock Holmes and I surveyed this curt announcement and the rueful face behind it until the comical side of the affair so completely overtopped every other consideration that we both burst out into a roar of laughter. I cannot see that there is anything very funny, cried our client flushing up to the roots of his flaming head. If you can do nothing better than laugh at me, I can go elsewhere. No, no, cried Holmes, shoving him back into the chair from which he had half risen. I really wouldn't miss your case for the world. It is most refreshingly unusual. But there is, if you will excuse my saying so, something just a little funny about it. Pray, what steps did you take when you found the card upon the door? I was staggered, sir. I did not know what to do. Then I called at the offices round, but none of them seemed to know anything about it. Finally, I went to the landlord, who is an accountant living on the ground floor, and I asked him if he could tell me what had become of the red-headed league. He said that he had never heard of any such body. Then I asked him who Mr. Duncan Ross was. He answered that the name was new to him. Well, said I, the gentleman at number four. What, the red-headed man? Yes. Oh, said he. His name was William Morris. He was a solicitor and was using my room as a temporary convenience until his new premises were ready. He moved out yesterday. Where could I find him? Oh, at his new offices. He did tell me the address. Yes. 17 King Edward Street, near St. Paul's. I started off Mr. Holmes. When I got to that address, it was a manufactory of artificial kneecaps and no one in it had ever heard of Mr. William Morris or Mr. Duncan Ross. And what did you do then? asked Holmes. I went home to saxe cobard Square, and I took the advice of my assistant. But he could not help me in any way. He could only say that if I waited I should hear by post, for that was not quite good enough, Mr. Holmes. I did not wish to lose such a place without a struggle. So as I had heard that you were good enough to give advice to poor folk who were in need of it, I came right away to you. And you did very wisely, said Holmes. Your case is an exceedingly remarkable one, and I shall be happy to look into it. From what you have told me, I think that it is possible that graver issues hang from it than might at first sight appear. Grave enough, said Mr. Jabez Wilson. Why, I have lost four pounds a week. As far as you are personally concerned, remarked Holmes, I do not see that you have any grievance against this extraordinary league. On the contrary, you are, as I understand, richer by some thirty pounds, to say nothing of the minute knowledge which you have gained on every subject, which comes under the letter A. You have lost nothing by them. No, sir. But I want to find out about them, and who they are, and what their object was in playing this prank, if it was a prank, upon me. It was a pretty expensive joke for them, for it cost them two and thirty pounds. We shall endeavour to clear up these points for you. And first, One or two questions, Mr. Wilson. This assistant of yours who first called your attention to the advertisement, how long had he been with you? About a month, then. How did he come? In an answer to an advertisement. Was he the only applicant? No, I had a dozen. Why did you pick him? Because he was handy and would come cheap. At half wages, in fact. Yes. What is he like, this Vincent Spaulding? Small, stout-built, very quick in his ways, no hair on his face, though he's not short of thirty, has a white splash of acid upon his forehead. Holmes sat up in his chair in considerable excitement. I thought as much, he said. Have you ever observed that his ears are pierced for earrings? Yes, sir. "Hm," said Holmes, sinking back in deep thought. He's still with you? Oh, yes, sir. I've only just left him. And has your business been attended to in your absence? Nothing to complain of, sir. There's never very much to do of a morning. That will do, Mr. Wilson. I shall be happy to give you an opinion upon this subject in the course of a day or two. Today is Saturday, and I hope that by Monday we may come to a conclusion. Well, Watson, said Holmes, when our visitor had left us. What do you make of it all? I make nothing of it, I answered, frankly. It is a most mysterious business. As a rule, said Holmes, the more bizarre a thing is, the less mysterious it proves to be. It is your commonplace, featureless crimes which are really puzzling, just as a commonplace face is the most difficult to identify. But I must be prompt over this matter. What are you going to do then? I asked. To smoke, he answered. It is quite a three-pipe problem, and I beg that you won't speak to me for fifty minutes. He curled himself up in his chair with his thin knees drawn up to his hawk-like nose and there he sat with his eyes closed and his black clay pipe thrusting out like the bill of some strange bird. I had come to the conclusion that he had dropped asleep, and indeed was nodding myself when he suddenly sprang out of his chair with the gesture of a man who's made up his mind and put his pipe down upon the mantelpiece. Sarasate plays at the St. James Hall this afternoon, he remarked. What do you think, Watson? Could your patience spare you for a few hours? I have nothing to do today. My practice is never very absorbing. Then put on your hat and come. I am going through the city first, and we can have some lunch on the way. I observe that there is a good deal of German music on the program, which is rather more to my taste than Italian or French. It is introspective, and I want to introspect. Come along. We travelled by the underground as far as Aldersgate, and a short walk took us to Saxcobert Square, the scene of the singular story which we had listened to in the morning. It was a pokey little shabby genteel place, where four lines of dingy, two-storied brick houses looked out into a small, railed-in enclosure, where a lawn of weedy grass and a few clumps of faded laurel bushes made a hard fight against a smoke-laden and uncongenial atmosphere. Three gilt balls and a brown board with "Jabez Wilson in white letters upon a corner house announced the place where a red-headed client carried on his business. Sherlock Holmes stopped in front of it with his head on one side and looked it all over with his eyes shining brightly between puckered lids. Then he walked slowly up the street and then down again to the corner, still looking keenly at the houses. Finally, he returned to the pawnbrokers, and, having thumped vigorously upon the pavement with his stick two or three times, he went to the door and knocked. It was instantly opened by a bright-looking, clean-shaven young fellow who asked him to step in. Thank you, said Holmes. I only wish to ask you how you would go from here to the Strand. Third right, fourth left answered the assistant promptly, closing the door. Smart fellow, that, observed Holmes as we walked away. He is, in my judgment, the fourth smartest man in London. And for daring, I am not sure that he has not a claim to the third. I've known something of him before. Evidently, said I, Mr. Wilson's assistant counts for a good deal in this mystery of the red-headed league. I'm sure that you inquired your way merely in order that you might see him. Not him. What then? The knees of his trousers. Oh, what did you see? What I expected to see. Why did you beat the pavement? My dear doctor, this is a time for observation, not for talk. We are spies in an enemy's country. We know something of saxe Square. Let us now explore the parts which lie behind it. The road in which we found ourselves as we turned round the corner from the retired saxe Square Presented as great a contrast to it as the front of a picture does to the back. It was one of the main arteries which conveyed the traffic of the city to the north and west. The roadway was blocked with the immense stream of commerce flowing in a double tide inward and outward, while the footpaths were black with a hurrying swarm of pedestrians. It was difficult to realize as we looked at the line of fine shops and stately business premises. That they really abutted on the other side upon the faded and stagnant square which we had just quitted. Let me see, said Holmes, standing at the corner and glancing down the line. I should like just to remember the order of the houses here. It is a hobby of mine to have an exact knowledge of London. There's Mortimer's, the tobacconist, the little newspaper shop, the Coburg branch of the city and suburban bank the vegetarian restaurant, and MacFarlane's carriage-building depot. That carries us right on to the other block. And now, Doctor, we've done our work, so it's time we had some play. A sandwich and a cup of coffee, and then off to violin land, where all its sweetness and delicacy and harmony, and there are no red-headed clients to vex us with their conundrums. My friend was an enthusiastic musician, being himself not... Only a very capable performer, but a composer of no ordinary merit. All the afternoon he sat in the stalls, wrapped in the most perfect happiness, gently waving his long, thin fingers in time to the music, while his gently smiling face and his languid, dreamy eyes were as unlike those of Holmes the sleuthhound, Holmes the relentless, keen witted, ready handed criminal agent, as it was possible to conceive. In his singular character, The dual nature alternately asserted itself, and his extreme exactness and astuteness represented, as I have often thought, the reaction against the poetic and contemplative mood which occasionally predominated in him. The swing of his nature took him from extreme languor to devouring energy, and, as well as I knew, he was never so truly formidable as when, for days on end, he had been lounging in his armchair amid his improvisations and his black-letter additions. Then it was that the lust of the chase would suddenly come upon him, and that his brilliant reasoning power would rise to the level of intuition, until those who were unacquainted with his methods would look askance at him, as on a man whose knowledge was not that of other mortals. When I saw him that afternoon so enwrapped in the music at St. James's Hall, I felt that an evil time might be coming upon those whom he had set himself to hump down. You want to go home, no doubt, Doctor, he remarked as we emerged. Yes, it would be as well. And I have some business to do which will take some hours. This business at Cobridge Square is serious. Why serious? A considerable crime is in contemplation. I have every reason to believe that we shall be in time to stop it but today being Saturday rather complicates the matters. I shall want your help tonight.
1: At what time? Ten will be early enough. I shall be at Baker Street at ten. Very well. And I say, Doctor, there
0: may be some little danger, so kindly put your army revolver in your pocket. He waved his hand, turned on his heel, and disappeared in an instant among the crowd. I trust that I am not more dense than my neighbours, I was always oppressed with a sense of my own stupidity in my dealings with Sherlock Holmes. Here I had heard what he had heard, I had seen what he had seen, and yet from his words it was evident that he saw clearly not only what had happened, but what was about to happen, while to me the whole business was still confused and grotesque. As I drove home to my house in Kensington, I thought over it all from the extraordinary story of the red headed copier of the encyclopedia down to the visit to saxe Square, and the ominous words with which he had parted from me.
1: What was this nocturnal expedition, and why should I go armed? Where were we going, and what were we to do? I had
0: the hint from Holmes that this smooth-faced pawnbroker's assistant was a formidable man, a man who might play a deep game. I tried to puzzle it out, but gave it up in despair and set the matter aside until night, should bring an explanation. It was quarter past nine when I started from home and made my way across the park and so through Oxford Street to Baker Street. Two Hansoms were standing at the door and as I entered the passage I heard the sound of voices from above. On entering his room, I found Holmes in animated conversation with two men, one of whom I recognized as Peter Jones, the official police agent, while the other was a long, long, thin, sad-faced man with a very shiny hat and oppressively respectable frock coat. Our party is complete, said Holmes, buttoning up his pea jacket and taking his heavy hunting crop from the rack. Watson, I think you know Mr. Jones of Scotland Yard. Let me introduce you to Mr. Merriweather, who is to be our companion in tonight's adventure. We're hunting in couples again, Doctor, you see, said Jones in his consequential way. Our friend here is a wonderful man for starting a chase. All he wants is an old dog to help him do the running down. I hope a wild goose may not prove to be the end of our chase, observed Mr. Merriweather gloomily. You may place considerable confidence, Mr. Holmes, sir, said the police agent loftily. He has his own little methods which are, if you won't mind my saying so, just a little too theatrical and fantastic, but he has the makings of a detective in him. It is not too much to say that once or twice, as in that business of the Sholto murder and the Agra treasure, he has been more nearly correct than the official force. Oh, if you say so, Mr. Jones, it is all right, said the stranger with deference. Still, I confess that I miss my rubber. It is the first Saturday night for seven and twenty years that I have not had my rubber. I think you will find, said Sherlock Holmes, that you will play for a higher stake tonight than you have ever done yet. And that the play will be more exciting. For you, Mr. Merriweather, the stake will be some £30,000, and for you, Jones, it will be the man upon whom you wish to lay your hands. John Clay, the murderer, thief, smasher, and forger. He's a young man, Mr. Merriweather, but he is at the head of his profession, and I would rather have my bracelets on him than on any criminal in London. He's a remarkable man, this young John Clay. His grandfather was a royal duke, and he himself has been to Eton and Oxford. His brain is as cunning as his fingers, and though we meet signs of him at every turn, we never know where to find the man himself. He'll crack a rib in Scotland one week, and be raising money to build an orphanage in Cornwall the next. I've been on his track for years, and I've never set my eyes on him yet. I hope that I may have the pleasure of introducing you tonight. I've had one or two little turns also with Mr. John Clay and I agree with you that he is at the head of his profession. It is past ten, however, and quite time that we started. If you two will take the first hansom, Watson and I will follow in the second. Sherlock Holmes was not very communicative during the long drive and lay back in the cab humming the tunes which he had heard in the afternoon. We rattled through an endless labyrinth of gaslit streets until we emerged into Farrington Street. We are close there now, my friend remarked. This fellow, Merriweather, is a bank director. I'm personally interested in the matter. I thought it as well to have Joneses with us, also. He is not a bad fellow, though an absolute imbecile in his profession. He has one positive virtue. He is as brave as a bulldog, and as tenacious as a lobster, if he gets his claws upon anyone. Here we are, and they are waiting for us we had reached the same crowded thoroughfare in which we had found ourselves in the morning. Our cabs were dismissed, and following the guidance of Mr. Merriweather, we passed down a narrow passage and through a side door, which he opened for us. Within, there was a small corridor, which ended in a very massive iron gate. This also was opened, and led down a flight of winding stone steps, which terminated at another formidable gate. Mr. Merriweather stopped to light a lantern, and then conducted us down a dark, earth-smelling passage, and so, after opening a third door, into a huge vault or cellar, which was piled all round with crates and massive boxes. You are not very vulnerable from above, Holmes remarked, as he held up the lantern and gazed about him. Nor from below, said Mr. Merriweather, striking his stick upon the flags which lined the floor. Why, dare me, it sounds quite hollow, he remarked, looking up in surprise. I must really ask you to be a little more quiet, said Holmes severely. You might have already imperiled the whole success of our expedition. Might I beg that you would have the goodness to sit down upon one of these boxes and to not interfere? The solemn Mr. Merriweather perched himself upon a crate with a very injured expression upon his face. All Holmes fell upon his knees upon the floor and with a lantern and a magnifying lens began to examine minutely the cracks upon the stones. A few seconds suffice to satisfy him, for he sprang to his feet again and put his glass in his pocket. We have at least an hour before us, he remarked, for they can hardly take any steps until the good pawnbroker is safely in bed. Then they will not lose a minute, for the sooner they do the work, the longer time they will have for their escape. We are at present, Doctor, as you no doubt have divined, and the seller of the city branch of one of the principal London banks. Mr. Merriweather is the Chairman of Directors, and he will explain to you that there are reasons why the more daring criminals of London should take a considerable interest in this cellar at present. It is our French gold, whispered the Director. We have had several warnings that an attempt might be made upon it. Your French gold? Yes. We had occasion some months ago to strengthen our resources, and borrowed for that purpose 30,000 Napoleons from the Bank of France. It has become known that we have never had occasion to unpack the money, and that it is still lying in our cellar. The crate upon which I sit contains 2,000 Napoleons packed between layers of lead foil. Our reserve of bullion is much larger at present than is usually kept in a single branch office, and the directors have had misgivings upon the subject, which are very well justified observed Holmes. And now it is time that we arrange our own plans. I expect that within an hour matters will come to a head. In the meantime, Mr. Merweather, we must put the screen over that dark lantern. And sit in the dark? I'm afraid so. I had brought a pack of cards in my pocket and I thought that, as we were a parti carré, you might have your rubber after all. But I see that the enemy's preparations have gone so far "'that we cannot risk the presence of a light. "'And first of all, we must choose our positions. "'These are daring men, "'and though we shall take them at a disadvantage, "'they may do us some harm unless we are careful. "'I shall stand behind this crate, "'and do you conceal yourselves behind those? "'Then, when I flash a light upon them, "'close in swiftly. "'If they fire, Watson, "'have no compunction about shooting them down.' I placed my revolver, cocked, upon the top of the wooden case behind which I crouched. Holmes shot the slide across the front of his lantern and left us in pitch darkness. Such an absolute darkness as I have never before experienced. The smell of hot metal remained to assure us that the light was still there, ready to flash out at a moment's notice. To me, with my nerves worked up to a pitch of expectancy, There was something depressing and subduing in the sudden gloom and in the cold, dank air of the vault. "'They have but one retreat,' whispered Holmes. "'That is, back through the house into Saxe cobard Square. I hope that you have done what I asked you, Jones. I have an inspector and two officers waiting at the front door. Then we have stopped all the holes, and now we must be silent and wait.' What a time it seemed. From comparing notes afterwards, it was but an hour and a quarter, yet it appeared to me that the night must have almost gone and the dawn be breaking above us. My limbs were weary and stiff, if I feared to change my position, yet my nerves were worked up to the highest pitch of tension, and my hearing was so acute that I could not only hear the gentle breathing of my companions, but I could distinguish the deeper, heavier in-breath of the bulky Jones from the thin, sighing note of the bank director. From my position, I could look over the case in the direction of the floor. Suddenly, my eyes caught the glint of a light. At first it was but a lurid spark upon the stone pavement. Then it lengthened out until it became a yellow line. And then, without any warning or sound, a gash seemed to open, and a hand appeared, a white, almost womanly hand, which felt about in the centre of the little area of light. For a minute... Or more, the hand with its writhing fingers protruded out of the floor, then it was withdrawn as suddenly as it appeared, and all was dark again, save the single lurid spark which marked a chink between the stones. Its disappearance, however, was but momentary with a rending, tearing sound. One of the broad white stones turned over upon its side and left a square gaping hole through which streamed the light of a lantern. Over the edge there peeped a clean cut boyish face which looked keenly about it, and then, with a hand on either side of the aperture, drew itself shoulder length and waist length until one knee rested upon the edge. In another instant he stood the side of the hole, and was hauling after him a companion, lithe and small like himself, with a pale face and a shock of very red hair. It's all clear, he whispered. Have you the chisel and the bags? Great Scott, jump Archie, jump, and I'll swing for it. Sherlock Holmes had sprung out and seized the intruder by the collar. The other dived down the hole, and I heard the sound of rending cloth as Jones clutched at his skirts. The light flashed upon the barrel of a revolver, but Holmes's hunting crop came down on the man's wrist, and the pistol clinked upon the stone floor. It's no use, John Clay, said Holmes blandly. You have no chance at all so I see, the other answered with the utmost coolness. I fancy that my pal is all right, though I see you have got his coattails. There are three men waiting for him at the door, said Holmes. Oh, indeed. You seem to have done the thing very completely. I must compliment you. And I you, Holmes answered. Your red-headed idea was very new and effective. You'll see your pal again presently, said Jones. He's quicker at climbing down holes than I am. Just hold out while I fix the derbies. I beg that you will not touch me with your filthy hands, remarked our prisoner as the handcuffs clattered upon his wrists. You may not be aware that I have royal blood in my veins. Have the goodness also when you address me, always to say sir and please. All right, said Jones with a stare and a snigger. Well, would you please, sir, march upstairs where we can get a cab to carry your highness to the police station? That is better, said John Clay serenely. He made a sweeping bow to the three of us and walked quietly off in the custody of the detective. Really, Mr. Holmes, said Mr. Merriether, as we followed him from the cellar, I do not know how the bank can thank you or repay you. There is no doubt that you have detected and defeated in the most complete manner one of the most determined attempts of bank robbery that have ever come within my experience. I have had one or two little scores of my own to settle with, Mr. John Clay, said Holmes. I have been at some small expense over this matter which I shall expect the bank to refund but beyond that I am amply repaid by having had an experience which is in many ways unique and by hearing the very remarkable narrative of the red-headed league you see watson he explained in the early hours of the morning as we sat over a glass of whisky and soda in baker street it was perfectly obvious from the first that the only possible object of this rather fantastic business of the advertisement of the league and the copying of the encyclopedia, must be to get this not-over-bright pawnbroker out of the way for a number of hours every day. It was a curious way of managing it, but really, it would be difficult to suggest a better. The method was no doubt suggested to Clay's ingenious mind by the colour of his accomplice's hair. The four pound a week was a lure which must draw him, and what was it to them who were playing for thousands? They put in the advertisement, One rogue has the temporary office, the other rogue incites the man to apply for it, and together they manage to secure his absence every morning in the week. From the time that I heard of the assistant having come for half wages, it was obvious to me that he had some strong motive for securing the situation. But how could you guess what the motive was? Had there been women in the house, I should have suspected a mere vulgar intrigue. That, however, was out of the question. The man's business was a small one, and there was nothing in his house which could account for such elaborate preparations, and such an expenditure as they were at. It must then be something out of the house. What could it be? I thought of the assistant's fondness for photography, and his trick of vanishing into the cellar. The cellar. There was the end of this tangled clue. Then I made inquiries as to this mysterious assistant, and I found that I had to deal with one of the coolest and most daring criminals in London. He was doing something in the cellar, something which took many hours a day for months on end. What could it be once more? I could think of nothing save that he was running a tunnel to some other building. So far I had got when we went to visit the scene of action. I surprised you by beating upon the pavement with a stick. I was ascertaining whether the cellar stretched out in front or behind. It was not in front. Then I rang the bell, and, as I hoped, the assistant answered it. We've had some skirmishes, but we had never set eyes upon each other before. I hardly looked at his face. His knees were what I wished to see. You must yourself have remarked how worn, wrinkled, and stained they were. They spoke of those hours of burrowing. The only remaining point was what they were burrowing for. I walked round the corner saw the city and suburban bank abutted on our other friend's premises and felt that I had solved my problem. When you drove home after the concert, I called upon Scotland Yard and upon the chairman of the Bank of Directors with the result that you have seen. And how could you tell that they would make their attempt tonight, I asked. Well, when they closed their league offices, that was a sign that they cared no longer about Mr. Jabez Wilson's presence. In other words... they had completed their tunnel. But it was essential that they should use it soon, or it might be discovered, or the bullion might be removed. Saturday would suit them better than any other day, as it would give them two days for their escape. For all these reasons, I expected them to come tonight. You reasoned it out beautifully, I exclaimed in unfeigned admiration. It is so long a chain, and yet every link rings true. It saved me from ennui. He answered, yawning. Alas, I already feel it closing in upon me. My life is spent in one long effort to escape from the commonplaces of existence. These little problems help me to do so. And you are a benefactor of the race, said I. He shrugged his shoulders. Well, perhaps after all, it is of some little use, he remarked. L'homme c'est
1: rien, Louvre c'est tout, as Gustave Flaubert. Wrote to George Sand. The Man with the Twisted Lip. Isa Whitney, brother of the
0: late Elias Whitney, DD, principal of the Theological College of St. George's, was much addicted to opium. The habit grew upon him, as I understand from some foolish freak when he was at college, for having read De Quincey's description of his dreams and sensations, he had drenched his tobacco with laudanum in an attempt to produce the same effects. He found, as so many more have done, that the practice is easier to attain than to get rid of, and for many years he continued to be a slave to the drug, an object of mingled horror and pity to his friends and relatives. I can see him now with yellow pasty face, drooping lids, and pinpoint pupils, all huddled in a chair, the wreck and ruin of a noble man. One night, it was in June, 89, there came a ring to my bell about the hour when a man gives his first yawn and glances at the clock. I sat up in my chair, and my wife laid her needlework down in her lap and made a little face of disappointment. A patient, said she. You'll have to go out. I groaned, for I was newly come back from a weary day. We heard the door open, a few hurried words, and then quick steps upon the linoleum. Our own door flew open, and a lady, clad in some dark-coloured stuff with a black veil, entered the room. You will excuse my calling so late, she began. And then, suddenly, losing her self-control, she ran forward, threw her arms around my wife's neck, and sobbed upon her shoulder. Oh, I'm in such trouble, she cried. I do so want a little help. Why, said my wife, pulling up her veil. It is Kate Whitney. How you startled me, Kate. I had not an idea who you were when you came in. I didn't know what to do, so I came straight to you. That was always the way. Folk who were in grief came to my wife like birds to a lighthouse. It was very sweet of you to come. Now you must have some wine and water and sit here comfortably and tell us all about it. Or should you rather that I sent James off to bed? Oh, no, no. I want the doctor's advice and help, too. It's about Isa. He's not been home for two days. I'm so frightened about him. It was not the first time that she had spoken to us of her husband's trouble, to me as a doctor, to my wife as an old friend and school companion. We soothed and comforted her by such words as we could find. Did she know where her husband was? Was it possible that we could bring him back to her? It seems that it was. She had the surest information that of late he had, when the fit was on him, made use of an opium den in the farthest east of the city. Hitherto his orgies had always been confined to one day, and he had come back, twitching and shattered in the evening. But now the spell had been upon him eight and forty hours, and he lay there, doubtless, among the dregs of the docks, breathing in the poison or sleeping off the effects. There he must be found, she was sure of it, at the Bar of Gold in Upper Swandam Lane. But what was she to do? How could she, a young and timid woman, make her way into such a place and pluck her husband out from among the ruffians who surrounded him? There was the case, and of course, there was but one way out of it. Might I not escort her to this place? And then, as a second thought, why should she come at all? I was Isa Whitney's medical advisor, and as such, I had influence over him. I could manage it better if I were alone. I promised her my word that I would send him home in a cab within two hours if he were indeed at the address which she had given me. And so in ten minutes I had left my armchair and cherry sitting room behind me and was speeding eastward in a hansom on a strange errand as it seemed to me at the time though the future only could show how strange it was to be. But there was no great difficulty in the first stage of my adventure. A Ursuantum Lane is a vile alley Lurking behind the high wharves, which line the north side of the river to the east of London Bridge. Between a slop shop and a gin shop, approached by a steep flight of steps leading down to a black gap like the mouth of a cave, I found the den of which I was in search. Ordering my cab to wait, I passed down the steps, worn hollow in the centre by the ceaseless tread of drunken feet, and by the light of a flickering oil lamp above the door. I found the latch and made my way into a long, low room, thick and heavy with the brown opium smoke, and terraced with wooden berths like the forecastle of an emigrant ship. Through the gloom, one could dimly catch a glimpse of bodies lying in strange, fantastic poses, bowed shoulders, bent knees, heads thrown back and chins pointing upward, with here and there a dark, lacklustre eye "'turned upon the newcomer. "'Out of the black shadows there glimmered, "'little red circles of light, "'now bright, now faint, "'as a burning poison waxed or waned "'in the bowls of the metal pipes. "'The most lay silent, "'but some muttered to themselves, "'and others talked together "'in a strange, low, monotonous voice, "'their conversation coming in gushes, "'and then suddenly tailing off into silence each mumbling out his own thoughts and paying little heed to the words of his neighbour. At the farther end was a small brazier of burning charcoal, beside which, on a three-legged wooden stool, there sat a tall, thin old man with his jaw resting upon his two fists and his elbows upon his knees, staring into the fire. As I entered, a sallow attendant had hurried up with a pipe for me and a supply of the drug beckoning me to an empty berth. Thank you. I have not come to stay, said I. There is a friend of mine here, Mr. Isa Whitney, and I wish to speak with him. There was a movement and an exclamation from my right, and peering through the gloom I saw Whitney, pale, haggard, and unkempt, staring out at me. My God, it's Watson, said he. He was in a pitiable state of reaction with every nerve in a twitter. I say, Watson, what o'clock is it?
1: Nearly eleven. Of what day? Of Friday, June 19th. Good heavens, I thought it was
0: Wednesday. It is Wednesday. What do you want to frighten a chap for? He sank his face onto his arms and began to sob in a high, treble key. I tell you that it is Friday, man. Your wife has been waiting this two days for you. You should be ashamed of yourself. So I am. But you've got mixed, Watson. For I've only been here a few hours. Three pipes, four pipes. I forget how many. But I'll go home with
1: you. I wouldn't frighten Kate. Poor little Kate. Give me your hand. Have you a cab? Yes, I have one waiting.
0: And I shall go in it. But I must owe something. Find what I owe, Watson. I'm all off colour. I can do nothing for myself. I walked down the narrow passage between the double row of sleepers, holding my breath to keep out the vile, stupefying fumes of the drug and looking about for the manager. As I passed the tall man who sat by the brazier, I felt a sudden pluck of my skirt and a low voice whispered, walk past me and then look back at me. The words fell quite distinctly upon my ear. I glanced down, They could have only come from the old man at my side. And yet he sat now as absorbed as ever, very thin, very wrinkled, bent with age, an opium pipe dangling down from between his knees, and though it had dropped in sheer lassitude from his fingers, I took two steps forward and looked back. It took all my self-control to prevent me from breaking out into a cry of astonishment. He had turned his back so that none could see him, but I, his form had filled out, his wrinkles were gone, the dull eyes had regained their fire, and there, sitting by the fire and grinning at my surprise, was none other than Sherlock Holmes. He made a slight motion to me to approach him, and instantly, as he turned his face half round to the company once more, subsided into a doddering, loosed lipped senility. Holmes I whispered. What on earth are you doing in this den? As low as you can, he answered, I have excellent ears. If you would have the great kindness to get rid of that suitish friend of yours, I would be exceedingly glad to have a little talk with you. I have a cab outside. Then pray, send him home in it. You may safely trust him, for he appears to be too limp to get into any mischief. I should recommend you also to send a note by the cabman to your wife, to say that you have thrown in your lot with me. If you will wait outside, I shall be with you in five minutes. It was difficult to refuse any of Sherlock Holmes's requests, for they were always so exceedingly definite and put forward with such an air of mastery. I felt, however, that when Whitney was once confined in the cab, my mission was practically accomplished, and for the rest, I could not wish anything better than to be associated with my friend one of those singular adventures which were the normal condition of his existence. In a few minutes I had written my note, paid Whitney's bill, led him out to the cab, and seen him driven through the darkness. In a very short time a decrepit figure had emerged from the opium den, and I was walking down the street with Sherlock Holmes. For two streets he shuffled along with a bent back and an uncertain foot. Then, glancing quickly round, He straightened himself out and burst into a hearty fit of laughter. I suppose, Watson, said he, that you imagine that I have added opium-smoking to cocaine injections and all the other little weaknesses on which you have favoured me with your medical views. I was certainly surprised to find you there, but no more so than I to find you. I came to find a friend, and I to find an enemy. An enemy? Yes one of my natural enemies, or shall I say, my natural prey. Briefly, Watson, I am in the midst of a very remarkable inquiry, and I have hoped to find a clue in the incoherent ramblings of these thoughts, as I have done before now. Had I been recognized in that den, my life would not have been worth an hour's purchase, for I have used it before now for my own purposes, and the rascally Lascar who runs it has sworn to have vengeance upon me. There's a trap door at the back of that building, near the corner of Paul's Wharf, which could tell some strange tales of what has passed through it upon the moonless nights. What, do you mean bodies? Aye, bodies, Watson. We should be rich men if we had a thousand pounds for every poor devil who has been done to death in that den. It is the vilest murder trap on the whole riverside, and I fear that Neville St. Clair has entered it never to leave it more. But our trap should be here. He put his two forefingers between his teeth and whistled shrilly, a signal which was answered by a similar whistle from the distance, followed shortly by the rattle of the wheels and the clink of horses' hoofs. Now, Watson, said Holmes, as a tall dog cart dashed up through the gloom, throwing out two golden tunnels of yellow light from its side lanterns. You come with me, won't you? If I can be of use. Oh, a trusty comrade is always of use, and a chronicler still more so. My room at the Cedars is a double-bedded one. The Cedars? Yes, that is Mr. St. Clair's house. I am staying there while I conduct the inquiry. Where is it, then? Near Lee, in Kent. We have a seven-mile drive before us. But I am all in the dark. Of course you are. You know all about it presently. Jump up here. All right, Joan. We shall not need
1: you. Here's half a crown. Look out for me tomorrow about eleven. So long, then. He flicked the horse
0: with his whip, and we dashed away through the endless succession of sombre and deserted streets, which widened gradually until we were flying across a broad, balustraded bridge, with a murky river flowing sluggishly beneath us. Beyond lay another dull wilderness of bricks and mortar its silence broken only by the heavy, regular footfall of the policeman, or the songs and shouts of some belated party of revelers. A dull rack was drifting slowly across the sky, and a star or two twinkled dimly here and there through the rifts of the clouds. Holmes drove in silence with his head sunk upon his breast and the ear of a man who is lost in thought, while I sat beside him, curious to learn what this new quest might be which seemed to tax his powers so sorely, and yet afraid to break in upon the current of his thoughts. We had driven several miles and were beginning to get to the fringe of the belt of suburban villas, when he shook himself, shrugged his shoulders, and lit up his pipe with the air of a man who is satisfied himself that he is acting for the best. You have a grand gift of silence, Watson, said he. It makes you quite invaluable as a companion. Upon my word, It is a great thing for me to have someone to talk to, for my own thoughts are not over-pleasant. I was wondering what I should say to this dear little woman tonight when she meets me at the door. You forget that I know nothing about it. I shall just have time to tell you the facts of the case before we get to Lee. It seems absurdly simple, and yet somehow I can get nothing to go upon. There's plenty of thread, no doubt, but I can't get the end of it into my hand. Now, I'll state the case clearly and concisely to you, Watson, and maybe you can see a spark where all is dark to me.
1: Proceed then. Some years ago, to be definite, in May 1884,
0: there came to Lee a gentleman, Neville St. Clair by name, who appeared to have plenty of money. He took a large villa, laid out the grounds very nicely, and lived generally in good style. By degrees, he made friends in the neighborhood, and in 1887, he married the daughter of a local brewer by whom he now has two children. He had no occupation, but was interested in several companies, and went into town as a rule in the morning, returning by the 514 from Cannon Street every night. Mr. St. Clair is now 37 years of age, is a man of temperate habits, a good husband, a very affectionate father. And a man who is popular with all who know him. I may add that his whole debts at the present moment, as far as we have been able to ascertain, amount to eighty-eight pounds and ten shillings, while he has two hundred and twenty pounds standing to his credit, in the capital and county bank. There is no reason, therefore, to think that money troubles have been weighing upon his mind. Last Monday, Mister. Neville St. went into town rather earlier than usual remarking before he started that he had two important commissions to perform and that he would bring his little boy home a box of bricks. Now, by the merest chance, his wife received a telegram upon this same Monday, very shortly after his departure, to the effect that a small parcel of considerable value, which he had been expecting, was waiting for her at the offices of the Aberdeen Shipping Company. Now, if you're well up in your London, you will know that the office of the company is in Fresno Street, which branches out of Upper Swandham Lane, where you found me tonight. Mrs. St. Clair had her lunch, started for the city, did some shopping, proceeded to the company's office, got her packet, and found herself at exactly 4.35, walking through Swandham Lane on her way back to the station. Have you followed me so far? It is very clear. If you remember, Monday was an exceedingly hot day, and Mrs. St. Clair walked slowly, glancing about in the hope of seeing a cab, as she did not like the neighbourhood in which she found herself. While she was walking in this way down Swandham Lane, she suddenly heard an ejaculation or cry, and was struck cold to see her husband looking down at her, and as it seemed to her, beckoning to her from a second-floor window. The window was open, and she distinctly saw his face, which she described as being terribly agitated. He waved his hands frantically to her, and then vanished from the window so suddenly that it seemed to her that he had been plucked back by some irresistible force from behind. One singular point which struck her quick feminine eye was that although he wore some dark coat, such as he had started to town in, he had on neither collar nor necktie. Convinced that something was amiss with him, she rushed down the steps, for the house was none other than the opium den in which you found me tonight, and running through the front room she attempted to ascend the stairs which led to the first floor. At the foot of the stairs, however, she met this Lascar scoundrel of whom I have spoken, who thrust her back, and aided by a Dane who acts as an assistant there, pushed her out into the street. Filled with the most maddening doubts and fears, she rushed down the lane and by rare good fortune, met in Fresno Street a number of constables with an inspector, all on their way to their beat. The inspector and two men accompanied her back, and in spite of the continued resistance of the proprietor, they made their way to the room in which Mr. St. Clair had last been seen. There was no sign of him there in fact. In the whole of that floor there was no one to be found save a wretch of hideous aspect who, it seems, made his home there. Both he and the Lascar stoutly swore that no one else had been in the front room during the afternoon. So determined was their denial that the inspector was staggered and had almost come to believe that Mrs. Sinclair had been deluded when with a cry she sprang at a small deal box which lay upon the table and tore the lid from it. Out there fell a cascade of children's bricks. It was the toy which he had promised to bring home. This discovery, and the evident confusion which the men showed, made the inspector realize that the matter was serious. The rooms were carefully examined, and results all pointed to an abominable crime. The front room was plainly furnished as a sitting room, and led into a small bedroom which looked out upon the back of one of the wharves. Between the wharf and the bedroom window is a narrow strip, which is dry at low tide, but is covered at high tide, with at least four and a half feet of water. The bedroom window was a broad one and opened from below. On examination, traces of blood were to be seen upon the windowsill, and several scattered drops were visible upon the wooden floor of the bedroom. Thrust away behind a curtain in the front room, all the clothes of Mr. Neville St. Clair, with the exception of his coat. His boots, his socks, his hat, and his watch all were there. There were no signs of violence upon any of these garments, and there were no other traces of Mr. Neville St. Clair. Out of the window he must apparently have gone, for no other exit could be discovered, and the ominous bloodstains upon the sill give a little promise that he could save himself by swimming. For the tide was at its very highest at the moment of the tragedy. And now, as to the villains who seemed to be immediately implicated in the matter. The Lascar was known to be a man of vilest antecedents, but as by Mrs. Sinclair's story, he was known to have been at the foot of the stair within a few seconds of her husband's appearance at the window. He could hardly have been more than an accessory to the crime. His defense was one of absolute ignorance. And he protested that he had no knowledge as to the doings of Hugh Boone, his lodger, and that he could not account in any way for the presence of the missing gentleman's clothes. So much for the Lascar manager. Now for the sinister man who lives upon the second floor of the opium den, and who was certainly the last human being whose eyes rested upon Neville Sinclair. His name is Hugh Boone, and his hideous face is one which is familiar to every man who goes much into the city. He is a professional beggar, though in order to avoid the police regulations, he pretends to a small trade in wax vistas. Some little distance down Threadneedle Street, upon the left-hand side, there is, as you may have remarked, a small angle in the wall. Here it is that this creature takes his daily seat, cross-legged with his tiny stock of matches on his lap, and, as he is a piteous spectacle, a small rain of charity descends into that greasy leather cap which lies upon the pavement beside him. I've watched the fellow more than once before, ever I thought of making his professional acquaintance, and I have been surprised at the harvest which he has reaped in a short time. His appearance, you see, is so remarkable that no one can pass him without observing him. A shock of orange hair, a pale face transfigured by a horrible scar, which, by its contraction, has turned up the outer edge of his upper lip, a bulldog chin, and a pair of very penetrating dark eyes, which present a singular contrast to the colour of his hair, all mark him out from amid the common crowd of mendicants. And so too does his wit, for he is ever ready with reply to any piece of chaff which may be thrown at him by the passers-by. This is the man whom we now learn to have been the lodger at the opium den, and to have been the last man to see the gentleman of whom we are in quest. What could he have done single-handed against a man in the prime of his life, said I? He walks with a limp, but in other respects, he appears to be a powerful and well-nurtured man. Surely your medical experience would tell you, Watson, that weakness in one limb is often compensated for by exceptional strength in the others. Pray, continue your narrative. Mrs. St. Clair had fainted at the sight of blood upon the window, and she was escorted home in a cab by the police, as her presence could be of no help to them in their investigations. Inspector Barton, who had charge of the case, made a very careful examination of the premises, but without finding anything which threw any light upon the matter. One mistake had been made in not arresting Boone instantly, as he was allowed some minutes during which... He might have communicated with his friend the Lascar, but this fault was soon remedied, and he was seized and searched without anything being found which could incriminate him. There were it is true some bloodstains upon his right shirt-sleeve, but he pointed to his ring finger, which had been cut near the nail, and explained that the bleeding came from there, adding that he had been to the window not long before, and that the stains which had been observed there came doubtless from the same source he denied strenuously having ever seen Mr. Neville Sinclair and swore that the presence of the clothes in his room was as much a mystery to him as to the police. As to Mrs. Sinclair's assertion that she had actually seen her husband at the window, he declared that she must have either been mad or dreaming. He was removed, loudly protesting to the police station, while the inspector remained upon the premises in the hope that the ebbing tide might afford some fresh clue. And it did. Though they hardly found upon the mud bank what they had feared to find. It was Neville Sinclair's coat and not Neville Sinclair which lay uncovered as the tide receded. And what do you think they found in the pockets? I cannot imagine. No, I don't think you would guess. Every pocket stuffed with pennies and halfpennies, 421 pennies and two hundred and seventy half pennies. It was no wonder that it had not been swept away by the tide. A human body is a different matter. There is a fierce eddy between the wharf and the house. It seemed likely enough that the weighted coat had remained when the stripped body had been sucked away into the river. But I understand that all the other clothes were found in the room. Would the body be dressed in a coat alone? No, sir. But the facts might be met speciously enough. Suppose that this man Boone had thrust Neville St. Clair through the window. There's no human eye which could have seen the deed. What would he do then? It would of course instantly strike him that he must get rid of the tell-tale garments. He would seize the coat then, and be in the act of throwing it out, when it would occur to him that it would swim and not sink. He has little time, for he has heard the scuffle downstairs when the wife tried to force her way up and perhaps he has already heard from his Lascar confederate that the police are hurrying up the street. There's not an instant to be lost. He rushes to some secret hoard, where he has accumulated the fruits of his beggary, and he stuffs all the coins upon which he can lay his hands into the pockets to make sure of the coats sinking. He throws it out, and would have done the same with the other garments had he not heard the rush of steps below and only just had time to close the window when the police appeared. It certainly sounds feasible. Well, we will take it as a working hypothesis, for want of a better. Boone, as I have told you, was arrested and taken to the station, but it could not be shown that there had ever been anything against him. He had for years been known as a professional beggar, but his life appeared to have been a very quiet and innocent one. There the matter stands at present, and the questions which have to be solved. What Neville St Clair was doing in the opium den, what happened to him when there, where is he now, and what Hugh Boone had to do with his disappearance, are all as far from a solution as ever. I confess that I cannot recall any case within my experience which looked at first glance so simple, and yet which presented such difficulties. While Sherlock Holmes had been detailing this singular series of events, we had been whirling through the outskirts of the great town until the last straggling houses had been left behind, and we rattled along with a country hedge upon either side of us. Just as he finished, however, we drove through two scattered villages where a few lights still glimmered in the windows. We are on the outskirts of Lee, said my companion. We have touched on three English counties in our short drive, starting in Middlesex, passing over an angle of Surrey and ending in Kent. See that light among the trees? That is the cedars, and beside that lamp sits a woman whose anxious ears have already, I have little doubt, caught the clink of her horse's feet. Why are you not conducting the case from Baker Street, I asked. Because there are many inquiries which must be made out here. Mrs. St. Clair has most kindly put two rooms at my disposal, and you may rest assured that she will have nothing but a welcome
1: for my friend and colleague. I hate to meet her, Watson, when I have no news of her husband. Here we are. We had pulled up
0: in front of a large villa which stood within its own grounds. A stable boy had run out to the horse's head, and springing down, I followed Holmes up the small, winding, gravel drive which led to the house. As we approached, the door flew open, and a little blonde woman stood in the opening, clad in some sort of light mousseline de soie with a touch of fluffy pink chiffon at her neck and wrists. She stood with her figure outlined against the flood of the light, one hand upon the door, one half raised in her eagerness, her body slightly bent, her head and face protruded with eager eyes and parted lips, a standing question. Well, she cried, well. And then, seeing that there were two of us, she gave a sharp cry of hope, which sank into a groan as she saw that my companion shook his head
1: and shrugged his shoulders. No good news? None. No bad? No. Thank God for that. But come in. You must be weary, for you have had a long
0: day. This is my friend Dr. Watson. He has been of most vital use to me in several of my cases, and a lucky chance has made it possible for me to bring him out and associate him with this investigation. I am delighted to see you, said she, pressing my hand warmly. You will, I am sure, forgive anything that may be wanting in our arrangements, when you consider the blow which has come so suddenly upon us. My dear madam, said I, I am an old campaigner, and if I were not, I can very well see that no apology is needed. If I can be of any assistance either to you or to my friend here, I shall be indeed happy. Now, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, said the lady, as we entered a well-lit dining room, upon the table of which a cold supper had been laid out, I should very much like to ask you one or two plain questions to which I beg that you will give me a plain answer. Certainly, madam. Do not trouble about my feelings. I am not hysterical nor given to fainting. I simply wish to hear your real, real opinion.
1: Upon what point? In your heart of hearts, do you think that Neville is alive? Sherlock Holmes seemed to be embarrassed by the question.
0: Frankly, now she repeated, "'standing upon the rug and looking keenly down at him "'as
1: he leaned back in a basket chair. "'Frankly then, madam, I do not. "'You think that he is dead? "'I do. "'Murdered? "'I don't say that, perhaps. "'And on what day did he meet his death? "'On Monday. "'Then perhaps, Mr.
0: Holmes, "'you will be good enough to explain "'how it is that I received a letter from him today.' Sherlock Holmes sprang out of his chair as if he had been galvanized. What? he roared. Yes, today. She stood smiling, holding up a little slip of paper in the air. May I see it? Certainly. He snatched it from her in his eagerness, and smoothing it out upon the table. He drew over the lamp and examined it intently. I had left my chair and was gazing at it over his shoulder. The envelope was a very coarse one, I was stamped with the graves and postmark, and with the date of that very day, or rather of the day before, for it was considerably after midnight. Coarse writing, murmured Holmes. Surely this is not your husband's writing, madam. No, but the enclosure is. I perceive also that whoever addressed the envelope had to go and as to the address. How can you tell that? The name, you see, is in perfectly black ink, which has dried itself. The rest is of the greyish colour, which shows that the blotting paper has been used. If it had been written straight off and then blotted, none would be of a deep black shade. This man has written the name, and there has then been a pause before he wrote the address, which can only mean that he was not familiar
1: with it. It is, of course, a trifle, but there is nothing so important as trifles. Let us now see the letter. Ha, there is an enclosure there yes. There was a ring,
0: his signet ring. And are you sure that this is your husband's hand? One of his hands. One. His hand when he wrote hurriedly. It is very unlike his usual writing, and yet I know it well. Darius, do not be frightened. All will come well. There is a huge error which it may take some little time to rectify. Wait in patience, Neville written in pencil upon the fly-leaf of a book, octavo-size, no watermark. Hmm. Posted today in Gravesend by a man with a dirty thumb. And the flap has been gummed, if I'm not very much in error, by a person who had been chewing tobacco. And you have no doubt that this is your husband's hand, madam. None. Neville wrote those words. And they were posted today at Gravesend. Well, Mrs. Sinclair, the clouds lighten though I should not venture to say that the danger is over. But he must be alive, Mr. Holmes. Unless this is a very clever forgery to put us on the wrong scent. The ring, after all, proves nothing. It may have been taken from him. No, no, it is it is his very own writing. Very well. It may, however, have been written on Monday and only posted today. That is possible. If so, much may have happened between. Oh, well, you must not discourage me, Mr. Holmes. I know that all is well with him. There is so keen a sympathy between us that I should know if evil came upon him. On the very day that I saw him last, he cut himself in the bedroom, and yet I in the dining room rushed upstairs instantly with the utmost certainty that something had happened. Do you think that I would respond to such a trifle and yet be ignorant of his death? I've seen too much not to know that the impression of a woman may be more valuable than the conclusion of an analytical reasoner. And in this letter, you certainly have a very strong piece of evidence to corroborate your view. But if your husband is alive and able to write letters, why should he remain away from you? I cannot imagine. It is unthinkable. And on Monday, he made no remarks before leaving you?
1: No. And you were surprised to see him in Swandam Lane? Very much so. Was the window open? Yes. Then he might have called to you. He might. He only, as I
0: understand, gave an inarticulate cry. Yes. A cry for help, you thought? Yes, he waved his hands. But it might have been a cry of surprise. Astonishment at the unexpected sight of you might cause him to throw up his hands.
1: It is possible. And you thought he was pulled back? He disappeared so suddenly. He might have leaped back. He did not see
0: anyone else in the room? No. But this horrible man confessed to having been there, and the Lascar was at the foot of the stairs. Quite so. Your husband, as far as you could see, had his ordinary clothes on, but without his collar or tie. I distinctly saw his bare throat. Had he ever spoken of Swandam
1: Lane? Never. Had he ever shown any signs of taking opium? Never. Thank you, Mrs. Sinclair. Those
0: are the principal points about which I wished to be absolutely clear. We shall now have a little supper and then retire, for we may have a very busy day tomorrow. A large and comfortable double-bedded room had been placed at our disposal, and I was quickly between the sheets, for I was weary after my night of adventure. Sherlock Holmes was a man, however, who when he had an unsolved problem upon his mind, would go for days, and even for a week, without rest, turning it over rearranging his facts, looking at it from every point of view, until he had either fathomed it or convinced himself that his data were insufficient. It was soon evident to me that he was now preparing for an all-night sitting. He took off his coat and waistcoat, put on a large blue dressing gown, and then wandered about the room collecting pillows from his bed and cushions from the sofa and armchairs. With these he constructed a sort of eastern divan upon which he perched himself cross-legged with an ounce of shag tobacco and a box of matches laid out in front of him. In the dim light of the lamp I saw him sitting there an old briar pipe between his lips his eyes fixed vacantly upon the corner of the ceiling the blue smoke curling up from him silent, motionless with a light shining upon his strong set aquiline features. So he sat as I dropped off to sleep, and so he sat when a sudden ejaculation caused me to wake up, and I found the summer sun shining into the apartment.
1: The pipe was still between his lips, the smoke still curled upward, and the room was full of dense tobacco haze.
0: But nothing remained of the heap of shag which I had seen the previous night. Awake, Watson, he asked. Yes. Game for a morning drive, certainly. Then dress. No one is stirring yet, but I know where the stable boy sleeps, and we shall soon have the trap out. He chuckled to himself as he spoke, his eyes twinkled, and he seemed a different man to the somber thinker of the previous night. As I dressed, I glanced at my watch. It was no wonder that no one was stirring. It was twenty five minutes past four. I had hardly finished when Holmes returned with the news that the boy was putting in the horse. I want to test a little theory of mine, said he, pulling on his boots. I think, Watson, that you are now standing in the presence of one of the most absolute fools in Europe. I deserve to be kicked from here to Charing Cross, but I think I have the key of the affair now. And where is it? I asked, smiling. In the bathroom, he answered. Oh yes, I am not joking, he continued, seeing my look of incredulity. I have just been there, and I have taken it out, and I have got it in this Gladstone bag. Come on, my boy, and we shall see whether it will not fit the lock. We made our way downstairs as quietly as possible and out in the bright morning sunshine. In the road stood our horse and trap with the half-clad stable boy waiting at the head. We both sprang in, and away we dashed down the London road. A few country carts were stirring, bearing in vegetables to the metropolis, but the lines of villas on either side were as silent and lifeless as some city in a dream. It has been in some points a singular case, said Holmes, flicking the horse onto a gallop. I confess that I have been as blind as a mole, but it is better to learn wisdom late than never to learn it at all. In town, the earliest risers were just beginning to look sleepily from their windows as we drove through the streets of the Surrey side. Passing down the Waterloo Bridge Road, we crossed over the river, and dashing up Wellington Street, wheeled sharply to the right and found ourselves in Bow Street. Sherlock Holmes was known to the force and the two constables at the door saluted him. One of them held the horse's head while the other led us in. Who is on duty? asked Holmes. Inspector Bradstreet, sir. Ah, Bradstreet, how are you? A tall, stout official had come down the stone-flagged passage in a peaked cap and a frogged jacket. I wish to have a quiet word with you, Bradstreet. Certainly, Mr. Holmes. Step into my room here. It was a small, office-like room with a huge ledger upon the table and a telephone projecting from the wall. The inspector sat down at his desk. What can I do for you, Mr. Holmes? I called about that beggar man, Boone, the one who was charged with being concerned in the disappearance of Mr. Neville St. Clair of Lee. Yes, he was brought up and remanded for further inquiries.
1: So I heard. You have him here? in the cells. Is he quiet? Oh, he gives no trouble, but he is a dirty scoundrel. Dirty? Yes, it is all we can do to make him wash his hands. Well,
0: once his case has been settled, he will have a regular prison bath, and I think if you saw him, you would agree with me that he needed it. I should like
1: to see him very much. Would you? That is easily done. Come this way. You can leave your bag. No, I think I'll take it. Very good.
0: Come this way, if you please. He led us down a passage, opened a barred door, passed down a winding stair, and brought us to a whitewashed corridor with a line of doors on each side. The third on the right is his, said the inspector. Here it is. He quietly shot back a panel in the upper part of the door and glanced through. He's asleep, said he. You can see him very well. We both put our eyes to the grating. The prisoner lay with his face towards us in a very deep sleep, breathing slowly and heavily. He was a middle-sized man, coarsely clad, as became his calling, with a coloured shirt protruding through the rent in his tattered coat. He was, as the inspector had said, extremely dirty, but the grime which covered his face could not conceal its repulsive ugliness. A broad wheel from an old scar ran right across from it, from eye to chin and by its contraction had turned up one side of the upper lip, so that the three teeth were exposed in a perpetual snarl. A shock of a very bright red hair grew low over his eyes and forehead. He's a beauty, isn't he? said the inspector. He certainly needs a wash, remarked Holmes. I had an idea that he might, and I took the liberty of bringing the tools with me. He opened the Gladstone bag as he spoke and took out, to my astonishment, a very large bath sponge. You're a funny one, chuckled the inspector. Now, if you will have the great goodness to open that door very quietly, we will soon make him cut a much more respectable figure. Well, I don't know why not, said the inspector, he doesn't look a credit to the Bow Street cells, does he? He slipped his key into the lock, and we all very quietly entered the cell. The sleeper half-turned and then settled down once more into a deep slumber. Holmes stooped to the water jug, "'moistened his sponge, and then rubbed it twice vigorously "'across and down the prisoner's face. "'Let me introduce you,' he shouted, "'to Mr. Neville Sinclair of Lee in the County of Kent. "'Never in my life have I seen such a sight. "'The man's face peeled off under the sponge like the bark from a tree. "'Gone was the coarse tint. "'Gone, too, was the horrid scar which had seamed it across.' and the twisted lip which had given the repulsive sneer to the face. A twitch brought away the tangled red hair, and there, sitting up in his bed, was a pale, sad-faced, refined-looking man, black-haired and smooth-skinned, rubbing his eyes and staring about him with sleepy bewilderment. Then suddenly, realizing the exposure, he broke into a scream and threw himself down with his face to the pillow. Good heavens! cried the inspector. It is indeed the missing man. I know him from the photograph. The prisoner turned with the reckless air of a man who abandoned himself to his destiny. Be it so, said he, and pray, what am I charged with? With making away with Mr. Neffel. Oh, come, you can't be charged with that unless they make a case of attempted suicide of it, said the inspector with a grin. Well, I have been twenty-seven years in the force, but this really takes the cake. If I am Mr. Neville Sinclair, then it is obvious that no crime has been committed, and that, therefore, I am illegally detained. No crime, but a very great error has been committed, said Holmes. You would have done better to have trusted your wife. It was not the wife, it was the children, groaned the prisoner. God help me, I would not have them ashamed of their father. My God, what an exposure, what can I do? Sherlock Holmes sat down beside him on the couch and patted him kindly on the shoulder. If you leave it to a court of law to clear the matter up, said he, of course you can hardly avoid publicity. On the other hand, if you convince the police authorities that there is no possible case against you, I do not know that there is any reason that the details should make their way into the papers. Inspector Bradstreet would, I am sure, make notes upon anything which you might tell us and submit it to the proper authorities. The case would then never go into court at all. God bless you, cried the prisoner passionately. I would have endured imprisonment, ay, even execution, rather than have left my miserable secret as a family blot to my children. You are the first to have ever heard my story. My father was a schoolmaster in Chesterfield, where I received an excellent education. I travelled in my youth, took to the stage, and finally became a reporter on an evening paper in London. One day my editor wished to have a series of articles upon begging in the metropolis, and I volunteered to supply them. There was the point from which all my adventures started. It was only by trying begging as an amateur that I could get the facts upon which to base my articles. When an actor, I had of course learned all the secrets of making up, and had been famous in the green room for my skill. I took advantage now of my attainments. I painted my face, and to make myself as pitiable as possible, I made a good scar and fixed one side of my lip in a twist by the aid of a small slip of flesh-coloured plaster. Then, with a red head of hair and an appropriate dress, I took my station in the business part of the city, ostensibly as a match-seller, but really as a beggar. For seven hours I plied my trade, and when I returned home in the evening, I found to my surprise that I had received no less than 26 shillings and fourpence. I wrote my articles and thought little more of the matter until, some time later, I backed a bill for a friend and had a writ served upon me for £25. I was at my wit's end where to get the money, but a sudden idea came to me. I begged a fortnight's grace from the creditor, asked for a holiday from my employers, and spent the time in begging in the city under my disguise. In ten days I had the money and had paid the debt. Well, you can imagine how hard it was to settle down to arduous work at two pounds a week, when I knew I could earn as much in a day by smearing my face with a little paint, laying my cap on the ground, and sitting still. It was a long fight between my pride and the money, but the dollars won at last, and I threw up reporting and sat day after day in the corner which I had first chosen, inspiring pity by my ghastly face and filling my pockets with coppers. Only one man knew my secret. He was the keeper of a low den in which I used to lodge in Swandham Lane, where I could, every morning, emerge as a squalid beggar and, in the evenings, transform myself into a well-dressed man about town. This fellow, a Lascar, was well paid by me for his rooms so that I knew that my secret was safe in his possession. Well, very soon I found that I was saving considerable sums of money. I do not mean that any beggar in the streets of London can earn £700 a year which is less than my average takings, but I had exceptional advantages in my power of making up, and also in a facility of repartee, which improved by practice and made me quite a recognized character in the city. All day, a stream of pennies, varied by silver, poured in upon me, and it was a very bad day in which I failed to make two pounds. As I grew richer, I grew more ambitious, took house in the country and eventually married, without anyone having a suspicion as to my real occupation. My dear wife knew that I had business in the city. She little knew what. Last Monday i had finished for the day and was dressing in my room above the opium den, when I looked out of my window and saw, to my horror and astonishment, that my wife was standing in the street with her eyes fixed full upon me. I gave a cry of surprise, threw up my arms to cover my face, and rushing to my confidant, Lascar, and treated him to prevent anyone from coming up to me. I heard her voice downstairs, but I knew that she could not ascend. Swiftly, I threw off my clothes, pulled on those of a beggar, and put on my pigments and wig. Even a wife's eyes could not pierce so complete a disguise. But then it occurred to me that there might be a search in the room and the clothes might betray me. I threw open the window, reopening by my violence a small cut which I had inflicted upon myself in the bedroom that morning. Then I seized my coat, which was weighted by the coppers which I had just transferred to, from the leather bag in which I carried my takings. I hurled it out of the window, and it disappeared into the Thames. The other clothes would have followed, but at that moment there was a rush of constables up the stair, and a few minutes after I found, rather, I confessed to my relief, that instead of being identified as Mr. Neville Sinclair, I was arrested as his murderer. I do not know that there is anything else for me to explain. I was determined to preserve my disguise as long as possible, and hence my preference for a dirty face. Knowing that my wife would be terribly anxious, I slipped off my ring and confided it to the lascar at a moment when no constable was watching me, together with a hurried scrawl telling her that she had no cause to
1: fear. That note only reached her yesterday, said Holmes. Good God, what a week she must have spent. The police have
0: watched this the scar, said Inspector Bradstreet, and I can quite understand that he might find it difficult to post a letter unobserved. Probably he handed it to some sailor customer of his who forgot all about it for some days. That was it, said Holmes, nodding approvingly. I have no doubt of it. But have you never been prosecuted for begging? Many times, but what was a fine to me? It must stop here, however, said Bradstreet. If the police are to hush this thing up, there must be no more of Hugh Boone. I have sworn it by the most solemn oaths which a man can take. In that case, I think that it is probable that no further steps may be taken. But if you're found again, then all must come out. I'm sure, Mr. Holmes, that we are very much indebted to you for having cleared the matter up. I wish I knew how you reach your results. I reached this one, said my friend, by sitting upon five pillows and consuming an ounce of shag. I think, Watson, that
1: if we drive to Baker Street, we shall be just in time for breakfast. Good night.